welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching Medium Cool Pod. That is Facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also uh, email us at MediumCoolPod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram. You know, you can find me at Austin Glidden. Uh, Or on Letterboxd, just type in Austin Glidden, I'll pop up. There's so many places to find me and Medium Cool. Come hang out with us. I'd love to hear more and more about what you're watching and and what you're interested in and all of those things. Uh, Today is a fun episode. I'm continuing the Under the Radar Marathon or the Nick Peticcio Appreciation Marathon, uh, as I uh, uh, affectionately called it. Uh, thank you again, Nick, for your uh, the Beast of War recommendation. It was a it was great fun to watch that and and receive that suggestion. Uh, today we're gonna I'm gonna be focusing on uh, a movie called Toto the Hero, and then I'm gonna talk about a Guy Madden film called The Saddest Music in the World, and then I'm gonna talk about an Australian film called The Year My Voice Broke. And then after I talk about those, uh, we're going to have our friend from the Midwest Film Journal uh, on. His name's Evan Dossie. And uh, Joe Shearer and I are going to be talking with Evan and just have a good old conversation. There's no real focus. We're not talking about specific movies. He has a column at the Midwest Film Journal called No Sleep October, where he and a whole mess of people, including myself and Joe, will be writing articles uh, on horror movies Uh, I selected From Beyond, so I'm going to be writing that sometime soon and trying to get that out. Uh, There are a whole back order from years past that you can read as well. So definitely go check out the Midwest Film Journal. It's a fun place to uh, hang out and read about movies and stuff. Pretty fun. Uh, So I'm going to be talking to Evan. This will be his first time on the show. Uh, But I'm really excited to talk about Toto the Hero, the saddest music in the world, and the year my voice broke. I want to get to that really quickly. I just want to say I've seen all of these before. I'll tell you the story in each of those segments. Uh, But I encourage you to seek each of these movies out. Uh, these are kind of hidden gems. They're they're under the radar movies. They fit perfectly, I think. I've literally never heard anyone except for my friend Riley talk about these movies before, ever, ever. So um, the saddest music in the world was on the Criterion Channel for a while. It's gone, unfortunately, now. Uh, but uh, yeah, that that's probably the biggest of the three I'm talking about today. But you'd be surprised at how few people have seen a Guy Madden movie. So I'm excited to get to that. We're going to get to it now. The first movie I'm going to talk about is a film I saw a long time ago, didn't remember until I rewatched it last week. It's called Toto the Hero. All right, everyone, Toto the Hero from 1991. This will be the first uh, film on this episode for our Under the Radar Marathon. It was directed by Jaco Van Dromal, uh, written by, let's try this one, guys, um, Didier Denec, Pascal Lonnet, uh, Jacques Van Dromal, and Lorette Van, wait, Van Kierbergen. Lorette Van Kierbergen. Oh, my God. I suck at that. Anyways, uh, the cast, Michel Bouquet, uh, Joe de Baquet, and Tom... Thomas or Thomas uh, Godet. I, I, it's it's difficult for me to switch between. I almost said the release date, which is June nineteenth, nineteen ninety one. That was in France. I almost said June. Anyways, it doesn't matter. June nineteenth, nineteen ninety one, in France, and uh, March sixth, nineteen ninety two, in New York only in the U S. Were the release dates for Toto the Hero. Um, I couldn't find any information on the budget or box office, but 
you know, the film is uh, has a pretty interesting story. Thomas and Alfred were born around the same time, and a fire in the nursery at the hospital uh, had nurses scrambling to save the newborns. Because he felt that he deserved Alfred's good fortune at being born into a wealthy family, Thomas conceives the idea that he and Alfred were switched at birth, and he can't help seeing that his unhappiness should be Alfred's, from the loss of his sister to his inability to have a relationship with the woman, Evelyn. So, as his life is ending, he formulates a plan to re uh, of revenge against his bitter enemy, his lifetime adversary, the man who stole his existence. Set in the near future, the film tells the life story of the elderly Thomas... Uh, oh, God. I already forget how to pronounce this. Van Hazebrook? I don't know. We're just going to call him Thomas. Uh, basically, who gives himself the name Toto as a child related to his childhood fantasy uh, of wanting to be a secret agent. So Thomas is looking back on his ordinary, apparently uneventful life uh, in a complex mosaic of flashbacks interspersed with fantasies about how events might have turned out differently. It is not always possible to tell the difference between embellished and manufactured memories and fantasies, as Thomas is an unreliable narrator. But some scenes, such as the narrative thread that features Toto as a secret agent, some scenes are definitely fantasized. This is a film about being tortured by loss, casting uh, the fault of your downfalls onto others, fulfilling life goals, vengeance, love, hate, murder. This film is complex despite its often Amelie-like lightheartedness. It's a, it's a heavy film, honestly, that I'm looking forward to talking about. So back in 2005 or 2006, my friend Riley told me about uh, Toto the Hero. Riley is my oldest friend. He is the one that pretty much helped me get into movies. You know, after I saw Amelie, I got into movies, and he's the one that kind of, uh, like, led me down a path. He would always give me new movies. He was the movie guy in my life at that time. And he told me about Toto the Hero when we first found it, uh, a VHS copy at my old workplace, Dave's Video, formerly known as Dave's Video and Tan, because, yes, you could tan, and then why don't you just rent a movie? Uh, I bought the VHS and watched it on my DVD-VHS combo player. Uh, unfortunately, I had forgotten way too much about the film uh, before this viewing uh, this week, so I'm glad I rewatched it. At the time, Toto the Hero was only available on VHS here in the U.S., and until last year, it was, only, it was the only way to watch it unless you found it digitally somewhere, or now you can buy the Blu-ray from Arrow in their Academy line. Uh, otherwise, this film seemed to have fallen off the face of the earth, and we're, you know, we're not talking about some small independent film that, you know, never left Belgium. Toto the Hero won, uh, you know, the Award of the Youth and the Golden Camera Award at the Cannes Film Festival that year, as well as winning 14 other awards around the world and nominated for four others. So this film is no slouch, yet it nearly skipped two technological generations, uh, the DVD and the Blu-ray, but thanks to Arrow, uh, you know, they were smart enough to pick it up. Now, I've been suggesting this to the Criterion Collection for years, but they dropped the ball. So thank you, Arrow. Anyways, I digress. Uh, as I said during the synopsis, Thomas is our lead, and we see him during three different generations of his life. A child middle-aged, and elderly. And one thing is for sure, 
Thomas's life sucks, all right? As a kid, Thomas, a.k.a. Toto, again, his secret agent fantasy persona, is picked on and bullied all the time. They call him Thomas Van Chicken Soup, uh, which is, like, super insulting, I guess. I don't know. And uh, constantly, they constantly push him into uh, a state of fear, pretty much. So, you know, he's afraid of everything, especially after his pilot father leaves to make a delivery during a storm and never returns. So the only person that seems to connect with him is his sister? Maybe? We'll see. Alice. Uh, Alice is his rock, and she protects him and supports him until Alfred uh, comes along. And Alfred is the neighbor, Thomas's neighbor, uh, whom Thomas thinks... you know, he and this neighbor, Alfred, were switched out at the hospital during this fire, that they got switched and they are in the wrong families. And, uh, you know, Alfred is basically Thomas's arch nemesis. Now, Thomas and Alice are no longer together due to a specific, due to specific circumstances that I'll let you see when you watch it, because I encourage you to do so. And, uh, you know, he's tortured by this. And throughout all three stages of Thomas's life, we see him struggle with this loss in different ways. His grief is so interesting uh, because in the film, it manifests differently depending on the generation that we're watching. So, you know, whenever he's older, uh, you know, it relates to vengeance. He wants vengeance in large part due to this grief early on. As a kid, he grieves it very differently. As a middle-aged person, he, he feels... Uh, depraved, or like there's a hole in his life somewhere that needs filled. And so you get all of these different aspects of grief through these different generations. And I absolutely love that little bit of subtext because they don't really like outwardly blatantly just say this is what's going on, though I think it is pretty obvious. Uh, but you do pick up on that. And it's it's really great. But the performances of Thomas, Alice, a later character, Evelyn, uh, who I won't comment on during this segment because I don't want to ruin that whole thing because it's really awesome, Uh, but also Alfred, they just drew me in, you know, and the relationships between these four characters are so complex and span for so many decades that, you know, it's a really fascinating experience, but this is actually a revenge story. Like I said, you know, it is, you know, from the perspective of the elderly Thomas, who is dead set on getting revenge on Alfred uh, for stealing his life all the way back when they were newborns. And Thomas's final goal in life is to murder Alfred. And Alfred is, is a pretty high up, you know, uh, person in society. And there are people already after him. And I love it because you see Thomas go, no, no, no. They can't kill him. I must kill him. You know, <laughs> there's like this whole like thing where he's just like so bound and determined uh, to kill Alfred. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, that's his final goal. But he lives in a nursing facility that looks like an elderly prison, basically. Uh, but I believe it's just like a secure living facility. So he sits in this small room and daydreams about the past. And that's how we learn about his life. Uh, through his memories, so we get the unreliable narrator part there. And I found the elderly Thomas's life so intriguing. And I, even though I love the segments of all the others, um, it's really the elderly Thomas, the present time of the film, uh, that really connected with me. And it's only because of the context of the other two generations that we watch. But man, I really love, uh, I really love the kind of end of his life. But despite this being a revenge story about a guy with a really sad life, okay, uh, the film is largely lighthearted, uh, you know, at least at the surface. You know, there are moments that it feels closer to something like Amelie from 2001, 
you know, whimsical and even fantastical at times. Uh, the cuts to Thomas's fantasy of being Toto, the secret agent, remind me of when Amelie has the same type of daydreams, both in the photo booth whenever she has the Zorro mask on, you know, or or even as a child when she kind of daydreams or, or has these uh, invisible friends, you know, these uh, not... Uh, I don't know what to call them, but, you know, she's just, like, hanging out with this, like, dinosaur or something at one point. <laughs> you know, like this, like, weird lizard thing. Uh, and, it's, and it's cool, you know, um, or, 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 or pictures talking to her, and you know, things like that. That's almost what this reminds me of. Uh, but there is a lightheartedness, but that lightheartedness never overshadows the very serious qualities of the film. And there are times where this movie actually throws an emotional punch um, or punches, I guess. And it's, it's really well done. The film is shocking. You know, there is a character that gets blown up out of nowhere, and it's so abrupt that my mind had to catch up to what happened. Like, it took me a second to go, oh, shit. Uh, but once I did, I was like, that was certainly a game changer, and uh, it changed the story completely. It made you completely rethink how the story goes, and then we get another scene later that does it again and completely changes the story. The way that the story evolves is incredible, and director Jaco van Dermal uh, knew how to pull us along as the audience, teasing us and tempting us before offering an even better solution than what was in our mind uh, the one that we were forming, you know, the solution we were forming, he gives you a better one. And, and, and that's one thing that we don't get often. You know, a film where you don't really know what's coming next. And I feel like this provided that experience. And Jaco van der Maal, uh made other movies as well. And I was completely unaware of until this week. I thought Toto the Hero was the only one because I didn't keep up with this guy. Uh, but it was his first feature. And uh, Dermal actually made six other features following Toto the Hero. Most notably was Mr. Nobody starring Jared Leto and Sarah Polly. Uh, I need to see that for sure. I haven't seen it, but it seems to be, it seems to have gotten a pretty good critical review. It has pretty high ratings on uh, Letterboxd and stuff, so uh, hopefully that is really good. But in an attempt to keep this short-ish, Toto the Hero is a film every cinephile should seek out. It's a hidden gem that has recently surfaced, and I hope that you find a way to see it. I'll admit, uh, for a long time, it was really hard uh, to, to find it without you know, over the last year, basically blindly buying it for $20 uh, through Arrow on Blu-ray. And, and I, I, I didn't I don't even think Amazon has it on Prime Video. OK, it's one of those movies. I watched it on YouTube for free, actually, though. You can go there, has the original uh, French language. It already has hard coded subtitles. You can watch the entire film on YouTube. I encourage you to go check it out. Uh, the video is titled uh, Toto Lo Eros uh, slash Toto the Hero. Uh, and in parentheses, 1991. Uh, but if you just type in Toto the Hero, it was like the fourth one that came up for me. You'll see it. You know, it's uh, an hour and a half or whatever, give or take. Uh, and you'll see the whole film there. So go watch this movie. I gave Toto the Hero a four out of five. I don't remember liking it this much when I first saw it. Um, I mean, it is it really deserves to be seen by people. I think it is some really interesting stuff. Is it the best film from 1991? No. Is it the best film ever? No. Is it the best French film? No. Is it the best Belgian film? No. The point is, it's really good, and it's something, it's a hidden gem that maybe you haven't heard of or had the opportunity to see, and I'm giving you that opportunity. Go check it out on YouTube. Uh, it's totally worth it. I watched it through my PS4, actually, just through the YouTube app, and I was able just to watch it on my TV. Very convenient, very easy. 
if you have if you are some of the few that have actually seen Toto the Hero and agree or disagree, please by all means hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Medium Cool Pod. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Uh, coming up next, I'm gonna talk about Guy Madden's The Saddest Music in the World for our next title in the Under the Radar Marathon. All right, Guy Madden's The Saddest Music in the World. Have you heard of this? I would love to know. Uh, This is uh, probably, I don't know, probably the biggest title of the three I'm covering today, though. It was easy for me to find. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But The Saddest Music in the World came out in 2003, directed and written by Guy Madden, co-written also by uh, George Tolles, I'm assuming it's pronounced, based on an original screenplay by Kazuo Ishiguro. Ishiguro. I said that right. Oh, my God. All right. Anyways, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro. (laughs) I'm saying it weird now because I'm overthinking it. The point is uh, the cast, you got Isabella Rossellini. You have uh, Mark McKinney. You have uh, uh, Maria Du... Oh, my God. Maderos. Yeah. Maria Du Maderos. David Fox. Ross McKillen. And Louis Negan. Uh, Louis Negan is also in the 20th Century, the movie from last year. We'll talk about that. He played the the, uh, mother who's in drag pretty much in like a bed. Uh, he plays a very, like a similarly weird character in this. Anyways, uh, release date was September 7th, 2003. The budget of $3.8 million. I don't know how much it made in the box office, um, but it did win six awards. It was nominated for seven more on top of that. And most of it, but not all, uh, or maybe all actually, I'd have to look at them again. But um, most of these awards uh, were related to visual production. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. But in Depression-era Winnipeg, a legless beer baroness hosts a contest for the saddest music in the world, offering a grand prize of $25,000, which during the Depression era, that was a lot of money. Uh, So they were offering $25,000 to the country who could produce the saddest song. This, of course, was uh, was a ploy to sell more beer. Uh, by making people sad and thus wanting to drink themselves happy. Uh, But there is so much more to this movie, uh, and I don't want to spoil it because I feel like whenever you get into specifics, this is one that you can kind of spoil, but at the same time, I feel like I could tell you every single plot point, every beat of this film, and it isn't going to do shit because this is a visual marvel. So we're going to talk about that in a moment. Now, uh, this is another film I saw back whenever I bought a used copy from Blockbuster, also a recommendation from my old pal Riley. And, you know, I have seen this movie several times, but none of those times were within the last 15 years until this week. I watched this on Amazon Prime where I did actually rent it. Um, Is that true? Yeah. Yes. Yes, that is true. So you can find it there. Sorry, I was making sure. I used to own the DVD of it, but I I must have gotten rid of it at some point. So uh, let's start with the characters. The rich beer baroness is Lady Helen Port Huntle, and uh, or Huntley, I think actually is how you pronounce it. But it's uh, she's played by Isabella Rossellini. If you've seen Blue Velvet, Isabella Rossellini is the uh, person that's basically perpetually abused um, by. Uh, oh my God! Why can't I think of his name? Dennis Hopper. God. Okay, thank God. Anyways, uh, but yeah, anyways, Isabella Rossellini plays uh, Lady Port Huntley. And, uh, you know, she eventually gets a pair of glass legs because she is a legless rich baroness. Uh, remember that. But she gets a pair of glass legs full of beer uh, 
by a smitten admirer and Canadian contest performer named Fyodor Kent, played by David Fox. Now, Kent's two sons are also performing in the contest, and one son is Chester, played by Mark McKinney, and uh, Chester is is there on behalf of America, and he's a capitalist who wishes he was an American-born citizen and is incapable of empathy or sadness. And uh, he is basically a piece of shit. Uh, and the second son is Roderick Kent, played by Ross McKillen, who also goes uh, by the name uh, Gravio the Great. And, uh, you know, that's his stage name. So he, he represents Serbia, where he has lived for some time. And uh, he is an eccentric neurotic hypochondriac who... Uh, looks almost like the Cenambulist from The Captain of Dr. Caligari, uh, you know, when he's not wearing a black hat with a veil that looks like it was stolen from a widow at her husband's funeral. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a sight to behold, I must say. And if this was a film noir, which it is not, but if it were, Narcissa would be the femme fatale. Narcissa is played by Maria de Medeiros uh, from Pulp Fiction fame. Actually, she's in the, the whole bit with... Uh, uh, Bruce Willis, and um, yeah, she is Chester's nymphomaniac girlfriend who clearly suffers from amnesia in this movie. Basically, if you haven't put it together yet, this is a weird flick, all right? And everything is painfully scripted, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It works, and each character has their own gimmick of sorts, uh, like the weird brother Roderick who carries his dead son's heart in a jar full of his own tears, um, you know, just like very silly kind of like, um, I don't know, just kind of like these eccentric things. Uh, they're, they're very strange. But the, the story circles around and around in this self-aware silliness, uh, all the while being filmed in an extremely avant-garde style that is unique to Guy Madden, the filmmaker. If anyone has a style, it's him. And there are only a few filmmakers, I think, are, who are truly unique. I would say David Lynch is one. I would say Alejandro Jodorowsky is one. Guy Madden earns a spot on that list. He has a very distinct style. If you've never watched a Madden film, I would probably suggest starting with something like my Winnipeg, um, an autobiographical documentary of sorts, kind of a documentary fictional thing. I don't know. Um, but he basically tells the story of his life living in Winnipeg, but he reenacts uh, a lot of scenes from it. And I don't know how much of those are accurate or whatnot, but it's a very fascinating film because it's all in his style. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But I would suggest starting with My Winnipeg. Um, but once you get a feel for his work, you know, you can jump straight on into the saddest music in the world. Uh, if you liked the 20th century from last year that came out, um, you know, uh, it's uh, one of my honorable mentions on my top 10 list last year. Like, I think it was number 11. Like, it's right barely off the list. I loved it. But it was on Joe and uh, and, and Matt, Matthew Sosi's top 10 list from 2020. Uh, you know, if you like the 20th century, Guy Madden is the OG here, okay? Uh, watching the saddest music in the world, I couldn't help but see the 20th century all over it. Clearly, the director of, of uh, the 20th century admires Guy Madden. But the 20th century isn't uh, nearly as ambitious or experimental as any of Madden's work that I've seen. And and uh, Madden's films often imitate the visual look uh, and special effects of the silent film era. And he uses like these authentic techniques to get there, such as like, you know, Vaseline on the lens to get like a natural blur or like a weird look. 
or, or using old cameras or old film stock or different types of blah, blah, blah. All of this just to capture a certain look or a vibe. Uh, he, he really is kind of, he's an artist. I mean, that's what he is. And uh, I mean, some of his films are actually shown in museums as like, uh, like, what do you call them? Not programs, but like as, as a thing, like as an actual art thing. I don't exhibit. Yeah, he has like films in museums as exhibits. Like they're they're that interesting and and uh, and just kind of strange and unique. Uh, but his films are all over the place, uh, and you know every frame is intentional, and it's great. Roger Ebert said of this: uh, the effect is sh watching the movie. That is the effect is strange and delightful. Somehow the style lends quasi credibility to a story that is entirely preposterous. And that's a great way to talk about the saddest music in the world. But but Madden is far from consistent in terms of techniques. And, uh, you know, in the, in the saddest music in the world, uh, you get a whole variety of them. One minute it looks like uh, an early 1920s silent film. The next, you know, it's in like this weird, uh, fuzzy, low-definition color. You know, the film goes back and forth. Uh, it's very, but it's in no like perceivable kind of, uh, there's no, like the scene that's in color, there's no reason for it to be there. It just, that was the choice. Uh, you know, but when you start to watch more of Madden's films, as you see more of his filmography, you see that it is very consistent, uh, you know, as, as in terms of what you can expect from one of his films. And so, uh, you know what you're getting into with Madden. Uh, maybe not specifically, but you know it's going to be ambitious, wild, and experimental. The film is set in 1933, the saddest music in the world, I mean. The film's set in 1933 during the American Prohibition era, but it takes place in Canada because it is a Canadian film. And uh, Madden builds a world you've never seen before. Uh, you know, when was the last time that you could actually say that, too? Truly. You know, when was the last time we had a film that was... You know, man, they really built a world that is unique, that is different. Uh, it happens, but it's just like very rare. And Madden does it, I feel like, every time. But, you know, we quickly learn Winnipeg has been chosen by the London Times for the fourth year in a row as the world capital of sorrow. And thus our story begins. But this film is less about story and more about, you know, it's used more as an exercise in visual experimentation. If you go into a Guy Madden film expecting a direct narrative, you'll sort you'll be sorely disappointed. But if you're going into it expecting a unique experience, look no further. Now, again, for the sake of brevity, I'm going to just end this by leaving you with one of Ebert's quotes at the end of his review back in 2004. And Ebert says, The more films you've seen, the more you may love the saddest music in the world. It plays like satirical nostalgia for a past that never existed. The actors bring that kind of earnestness to it that seems peculiar to supercharged melodrama. You can never catch them grinning, although great is the joy of Lady Port Huntley uh, when, we, when she poses with her sexy new beer-filled glass legs. Nor can you catch Madden condescending his characters. He takes them as seriously as he possibly can, considering that they occupy a mad, strange, gloomy, absurd comedy. To see this film, to enter the world of Guy Madden, is to understand how a film can be created entirely by its style, and how its style can create a world that has never existed before and lure us, at first bemused, 
and then astonished, into it. I gave the saddest music in the world a 4 out of 5, and uh, just like I did with Toto the Hero, uh, if you have seen the film and agree or disagree, please hit us up, as I said before, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MediumCoolPod. You can also email us at MediumCoolPod at gmail.com. I have one more under the radar selection for you, and it is called The Year My Voice Broke. The Year My Voice Broke is from 1987, directed by John Dygan, written by John Dygan, cast Noah Taylor, Ben Mendelsohn, and uh, Leon Carmen. Uh, the release date was October 15, 1987 in Australia, but October 17, 1987, only two days later, we got a U.S. release. The budget was $850,000, and the box office made $1.5 million in Australia alone, and that's the number that I found. Set in 1962, Danny, played by Noah Taylor, a thin, socially awkward adolescent, falls in love with his best friend Freya in rural New South Wales, Australia. Unfortunately for him, she is attracted to Trevor, played by Ben Mendelsohn, a high school rugby star, Larkin, and petty criminal who helps Danny with the school bullies. Uh, the film is interested in watching the relationships between these characters rise and fall while also putting them in challenging scenarios that feel real and relatable, or at least more so than other movies about teenagers. Now, yet again, this is a movie my old pal Riley has been telling me about for nearly two decades, and, you know, the problem was I had no way of watching it because it was only available on VHS in the U.S., and uh, though it was at the local public library where I grew up, unbeknownst to me, but apparently it was, that's how he watched it, I had, uh, you know, a lot of late fees on my library card, <laughs> and I couldn't rent anything because I would rent stuff and keep it for too long, but anyways, I digress. So, you know, I had no way of seeing this movie for a long time, and it wasn't until uh, last week that I thought, man, maybe I actually can now, I just never even thought of it. And, uh, you know, maybe it would be online somewhere. Unfortunately, you know, it's not really easy to find at all. Um, it's not even accessible to everyone. Um, it is on Amazon Prime Video, but it's currently just unavailable. You can't rent it. You can't watch it. It just There's just like a, a screen for it. So uh, you can't watch it really right now. But luckily, it was able to get in. Uh, I was able to get a my hands on a copy. And if you don't care that it looks wonky, this is not the one I watched, but this is an option. If you don't care that it looks wonky, there are two copies on YouTube you can watch for free. You know, just type in the year my voice broke, you'll find, you'll see the times and it's like an hour and 40 minutes or something or an hour and a half, hour long, hour and 40, I think. So you'll see that it's like a longer one. That's the full movie. One of them is just like a little bit squished. And then the other one, I don't even remember what the problem was. Maybe it just sounded like shit. I can't remember. But the point is there are copies there if you want to watch it. Um, if you can get past it, the film is absolutely a pure-cut diamond. And uh, if I recommend any of the movies I've talked about today, it would be this one. Now, I love this movie. I'll get that out of here right now. This movie is absolutely awesome. And it's largely because, one, I love movies about people as in characters that feel real and movies that focus on them. And two, I love when a movie takes their teenagers seriously and doesn't create them based on an adult's perspective, but rather allows them to be unabashedly teen 
Okay. <laughs> like they can be teenage. Um, so it's like a John Hughes movie. Take Ferris Bueller's Day Off for 16 Candles. Teenagers loved these movies because Hughes made it his goal to offer a perspective about teens as seen through the eyes of a teen. Not that he was a teen, but he was trying to get to that point. So, you know, when you're a teenager, there are relatable and real moments in these Hughes movies. In the year my voice broke takes this approach as well with its characters, but instead of feeling like a John Hughes movie, it feels more akin to something like Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show or something along those lines, you know, a little bit slower paced. I wouldn't call it slow at all, but it is slower paced than a John Hughes movie. Uh, and uh, it really just... It feels moody. It feels like there's like this atmosphere. And we'll, we'll get to the uh, setting of the film. Um, but, you know, we see these characters go through pivotal events in their lives. And we see their motivations, especially Danny's, seeing as how, you know, we follow him through most of the movie. Noah Taylor, who seems like, you know, he's been in every movie uh, since uh, the year my voice broke, um, but is mostly known for his... Uh, roles in Almost Famous, Vanilla Sky, Life Aquatic, The Proposition, The New World, and so on it goes. But uh, Taylor is perfect as Danny. He looks the same, too, somehow. But <laughs> um, but he is absolutely perfect as Danny. The conviction he puts in to this character is so good, especially because he sometimes does weird stuff, like stealing girls' underwear off of a clothesline, or, you know, trying to telepathically make someone fall in love with him, or even just, like, straight up, like, learns how to hypnotize people um, in order, like, he tries to hypnotize his best friend so he can see under a skirt. Of course, this doesn't work, and it's, like, this humiliating moment. But, you know, yeah, it's terrible. It's pretty gross, you know, but it doesn't make him any less real because, quite frankly, at that point in my life, I would never do these things now, nor do I condone them. But at that time in my life, you know, I, I would really relate to this kid so much. And I even do now kind of retroactively, like, because I see a lot of myself there uh, for good and for better, for worse. You know, like, I'm not I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not that way now. But regardless of what he does in action, it's what he's feeling that I could remember feeling as a teenager. It's less about what Danny is doing, but more about what he's feeling. So, you know, that's what brings you in to this because what he does is sometimes problematic, is sometimes understandable, you know, depending on what that situation is, but he puts himself in a lot of situations that make him feel. And that's what really, really, really connected with me and what made me relate to this character more than, quite frankly, I've related to many characters in the last decade or two or more. I mean, I really felt for this character and he is the highlight of the film for me in large part because he tortures himself by hanging out with Freya his female best friend who he's not so secretly in love with but she's dating the rebel Trevor who he's kind of slowly becomes friends with you know he's become friends with them um, and and I was in this exact situation where my best friend at one point a young woman was dating a very very close friend of mine a bandmate but I was super into her, my best friend, you know, and it was just really hard to go through sometimes because all you wanted to be was in, in the shoes of the person of your other close friend that's dating her, you know, and it's and you hear them talk and you want to be there, but it's it can be hard. And, and I've been in so many relationships, both friendships and uh, romantic relationships where I, where I allow myself to be hurt just to support the person I'm around. And this is Danny. 
And for him, it's a life of misery. <laughs> um, but the film takes place in a small town reminiscent of places that my dad has lived. Uh, you know, it really reminded, like, I could relate to this to an extent, too. Not the exact setting, but, you know, uh, it reminded me of places that I've I've been or kind of lived, you know. And, and this little Australian town clearly just breeds bored children. <laughs> and they run amok, as they say. And, you know, I, I love the setting in The Year My Voice Broke. It's gorgeous to look at, all right? And it so perfectly sets up each scene as if it's enhancing each of them just by existing. And, and Digan couldn't have picked better locations. But John Digan wrote a script based on his experiences going to a boarding school in the mid-60s, and he called it Flirting, the script. And he was unable to make that film. He couldn't get it funded. So, you know, he wrote a prequel, The Year My Voice Broke, which is the film under discussion today. And based on the leading character, his flirting movie was based, or sorry, The Year My Voice Broke was based on the leading character growing up in a country town. Now, Diagon had agreed to make the film as one of four short TV movies they were making for uh, a channel in Australia called Channel 10 Network. And uh, Diagon was allowed to use, you know, 35 millimeter film, and uh, the film was shot but not set in Braidwood, New South Wales. Uh, it had several working titles, including Reflections of a Golden Childhood and Museum of Desire. Now, uh, a quick caveat, the film Flirting was later made in 1991, so he got to make that movie afterwards as a sequel to The Year My Voice Broke, and it's supposed to be really good. I have yet to see it. Not supposed to be as good as The Year My Voice Broke, but still really good, and I have yet to see it, but I want to. Uh, it is also available for free on YouTube, and that copy actually looks normal, so that's just a movie you can watch for free on there. But... Uh, Diagon had the cast, namely the main three, rehearse their scenes repeatedly until it just felt natural and they didn't have to think about what they were saying. They could just focus on the performances. And uh, the actors love this. Ben Mendelsohn uh, talked about you know, it being really helpful in his development of Trevor, the rough rugby player, basically an outlaw. And uh, Mendelsohn is uh, famous as heck right now. Uh, <laughs> you would know him uh, even if you didn't know uh, him by name. He was in Star Wars Rogue One. He was in Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. He was in the HBO TV series uh, The Outsider. He was like the main person from last year. Uh, the Place Beyond the Pines, Killing Them Softly, etc., etc. He's in so much as well. So this film really bred like two uh, actors that would go on to be huge, both U.S. and British. Uh, and Noah Taylor lives in uh, the U.K., so you know he's in a lot of British movies too. But even just in the U.S., like it breeded two stars that would be huge and and affect our cinema. You know, influence. Um, Hollywood, basically. So that's just really, really awesome. But anyways, Mendelssohn, uh, you know, he created a multi-layered character out of this rebel. You know, he starts off as kind of a cliche. You really kind of get the idea of what this character is going to be. But then you start to see a real person break through. And all of this is through the writing and the film structure. And God damn it, I love this movie. It rules. So, you know, the movie is no small film. It's uh, a classic in Australia. You know, it, it, it would, I would assume it's probably like a John Hughes movie here, um, but for them, you know, 
I could be wrong there, but that's what it feels like to me. And it's a film that I think needs to be remembered. I mean, it won six awards, including several AFI awards, and was nominated for four more, so ten total um, that it was either that it either won or was nominated for. It's basically a tour de force in a coming of age movies, and coming of age can be such an overused term and often is attributed to films that can't catch the check that they're trying to write. But the year my voice broke uh, signs off on that check and cashes it like crazy. I mean, it is a tried and true coming of age story that earns that label and does it in a way I wish more movies would. So, you know, is this going to be for everyone? Probably not, but it should be. And I think it's good enough to be. And my question for you is, are you good enough to like it? Uh, I gave The Year My Voice Broke a four and a half out of five. I absolutely adore this movie. And uh, if you've seen the film and agree or disagree, please, please let me know. I would love to know your thoughts on this one, if if only this one. Um, please hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's Medium Cool Pod. Uh, find us also mediumcoolpod at gmail.com if you want to email us your thoughts. All right, next, I am going to be talking with Joe Shearer, our old pal, and a new friend, Evan Dossie, from the Midwest Film Journal. Give us just a second, and we'll be right back. All right, everybody, I am here with Joe Shearer, which is no stranger. Say hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. Oh, Jesus. And then I'm also here <laughs> with Evan Dossie. Of the of Midwest Film Journal, Evan, yep. it's the first time you've been on here. Hi. <laughs> We're going to be talking about quite a bit today. Uh, I have a few questions for you, Evan, before we kind of get into a general conversation. But, you know, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Midwest Film Journal. I want to talk a little bit about sure. No Sleep October, which yep. is coming up here. I think we're all involved in this yeah. to some extent. Yeah. Um, but I want to start, though, and then we can just get into general horror if we have time. We can just talk about movies. But sure. I want to start with, you know, Joe and I have both on the podcast talked about how we got into film. Most guests that I have, I ask the big question, which I'm asking you now. What brought you into film? I mean, how did you even get to a point where you wanted to watch movies, let alone make it a part of your life? Well, I mean, I think everyone, especially people my age, um, got into watching movies because we would rent movies from Blockbuster or Hollywood Video on the weekends and enjoy watching them and go to movies socially, maybe more so than kids these days, not to sound like an old man, but I mean, in the early 90s, throughout the 90s and into the 2000s, it was still the, the big thing. Um, and when I was growing up, my, my dad had these uh, DVD and video guides by Mick Martin and Marsha Porter. I don't know if you remember them. I can show you a picture. I mean, obviously, you can't see it on yeah. the podcast with those. So I would read those religiously before bed just for fun. Um, and that's where I sort of started reading film criticism. I mean, this is before the Internet, before I could before I ever watched Ebert and in, in, um, any, any Ebert, film. Yeah. yeah. For a second, I was going to say Ebert and Roper. And then I was like, shit, no, it was before that. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Chicago the night. I think either I or my father was in the Chicago the night uh, Siskel died suddenly. I remember that. That was a memory I had, um, um, being surprised by that. But, yeah, so I used to read these video guides, and they have, like, these blurb reviews, which is still something that I, I – why my reviews are often pretty brief. Um, very much, like, my main inspiration with these DVD video guides. Like, I still keep this one from 2007 next to my desk and just flip through it 
just to see. Um, so that's a long answer. Um, that is not, you do it, not know Joe well enough because that is not a long <laughs> answer, dude. <laughs> I'll make my answer longer. So I got into film criticism. I've been writing film criticism since I was a junior in, no, sorry, since junior high, actually. But I never wrote for uh, Carmel High School's newspaper like Sam did. But I used to uh, read Sam's reviews because he was a year younger than me and I'd shit talk him to my friend Josh. And I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. But I didn't meet Sam until I had actually left Carmel High School and gone to Ball State and was so pissed off at one of his reviews that I emailed him angrily. And then we also ran into each other at uh, the Carmel Library and I recommended Eraserhead. Um, so because of my friendship with Sam, who's uh, probably my best friend, um, he was my best man at my wedding and stuff, he, uh, he was writing for the Film Yap, where I later became editor-in-chief. Um <laughs> And, <laughs> and, and uh, anyway, so then I got into writing, uh, writing for Film Yap because he introduced me to Joe at Horror, Horror Hound in 2010. Uh-huh. Uh, and then in 2012, I started writing more regularly for you guys. And then, then I supplanted him in 2016. Um, and then I moved on to Greener Pastures and Midwest Film Journal because Joe was just really terrible to work with. <laughs> I mean, I can't deny. (laughs) But that's where we're at now. We we run our site and do a lot of cool stuff. So, yeah, so, um, yeah, I was meeting Sam there. That was the first time I ever met Sam in person. And he was like, oh, yeah, my friend, you know, he does some writing, too. And, you know, so I uh, I was like, oh, well, yeah, bring him along, whatever. I'll, you know, I'll do whatever. Like, you guys are hanging out. I don't know. You guys are hanging out. I was meeting up with you. Sure, yeah. I was like, whatever. That'd That'd be cool. So. Like we're we're just sitting there talking, you know, there's people around and and uh I think Evan said he was like, I think uh Harry Knowles is supposed to be here. So Harry Knowles from Ain't It Cool News. Uh, who at the time was like a big like he was like the big quote unquote internet sure. film person. Yeah. I'm not gonna call him a critic, but um so I was like, Really? He's like, Yeah, he's just walking around. I was like, Let's go meet him. And he's like, Evan just had this look on his face, like, What? We can't do that. I was like, Yeah, let's just go say hi to him. So we we like walk around until we find him and and there's like this little line of people like just out in the middle of like the you know like you know there's the tables right of of whatever you know merch and you know the celebrities and stuff and he's just like out in the middle because he's just you know a, another you know convention goer and these people are just walking up to him so we're like standing in line waiting and it and it's like and I'm I'm in the front I think I think you and Sam are like right behind me yeah and and like, so this next guy talks to him and then the next guy talks and then now I'm next. And I like start to step up to say hi. And all of a sudden Tom Savini runs out, like just like busts right in front of us. And he's like, Harry and Harry, you gotta see this. This is the coolest thing. I somebody gave this to me just, and I'm sitting here and I'm like, what the hell is happening? Like, this is Tom Savini. Like, you know, if, you, if you're listening to this podcast, you know who Tom Savini is. Stop listening to it and go find out who Tom Savini is. I'm not going to tell you because you better know. So he uh, he's like, look at this thing. And like I said, his arms are waving around. He's like, this is the coolest thing. And he like reaches in his pocket and he pulls out this knife and he and he like stabs it into Harry. And it's like it's like one of those knives that you buy at at uh, like, I don't know. I bought them at the drugstore when I was six, you know, and the and the little plastic blade goes inside the hilt. Right. It's like spring loaded. So when you pull it out, OK, it looks like you stabbed somebody. And he's like, isn't that the coolest thing? I got to go. And he like takes off running. And I'm just standing there. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? 
like Tom Savini, like this was just like a moment. And <laughs> Tom Savini just like interrupted us with this night. And I was like, it's and plus not to mention, you know, he's like the most famous effects man in the world. And I just saw him like geeking out over a goddamn plastic knife that I had when I was six years old. And I was just like, I can't believe that that just happened. Like, how does, how has he never seen one of those before? <laughs> I, was like, I don't remember that part of the story at all. All I remember is that by the time we spoke to Harry Knowles, Harry Knowles was a huge asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember anything about him yeah. or who he was. Like, I, I, I was remember. Like, go ahead. No, I can remember Savini now that you mention it, but just uh, when, the way it's been cataloged in my mind for years is like, man, Harry Knowles, what an asshole. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, all I remember is Tom Savini. I don't remember hardly even his, the sound of his voice, you know? Yeah. And I was like, Tom Savini right there. I was like, that was the coolest thing that ever happened. That is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like there's, he, there's some like joke there that we're just not uh-huh. in on. Like, I just can't imagine. A person like Tom Savini not knowing what these knives are, but yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna completely derail us from Joe's train here and yeah. go back to something you said, Evan, where you were talking about the reference books. Yeah. And uh, the one that got me, I, I was already into film by this point. Yeah. But the one that really got me exposed was: Have you ever seen those Jay Schneider uh, 1001 movies? You must see before you yeah, die. Yeah, I have. I have one of those. Yeah, I yeah. have I have nerdily enough two of them. Um yeah. <laughs> for no reason. But I also have like the little 101 movies, like they have these little small ones yeah. for genre based like horror and war. Yeah. I I I'm with you, man. Like I love these like dorky little things that have like a billion movies in them and they just have these small little blurbs that really don't do any kind of true justice, but they give sure. you just enough and they're yeah. so good. Ah, I love those books. Yeah, it's funny. I can't imagine my son growing up in the same situation where, like, you know, I didn't have a computer. We didn't have the Internet, but I didn't have a computer in my room or a TV in my room or whatever. So, like, if I was messing around at night, like, I would just read reviews of movies I probably still haven't seen. But now people just watch shitty YouTube videos and we're all obsolete. So, (laughs) no, I so. uh Tell us a little bit about Midwest Film Journal before we get into this No Sleep October thing. Tell us about, I mean, you talked sure. about kind of how you got there, but yeah. tell us about how that started and where you guys are now. Sure. So, I mean, I was editor-in-chief of the film, yeah, for a little while. And then, <laughs> and then, um, but mid-2016, um, so I started No Sleep October at the other site in 2013 as as uh, some fun because I hadn't seen most important horror movies. So just wasn't into horror and had for, you know, it was freaked me out enough that I hadn't seen, you know, Hellraiser, Texan Chainsaw, Chainsaw Massacre. Um, I think that year I watched Friday the 13th and Halloween for the first time and Candyman. Um, but I was 2013. So I skipped the next two years. And then in 2016, I, I got into the IFJA and part of being a, the IFJA was, I, I thought I wasn't, didn't have a high enough output, really. I was really proud to have been accepted, but, <clears throat> I mean, I wouldn't have voted me in now, based on the circumstances. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, um, so one of the things I was doing that year was, was just trying to increase my output. Um, and I decided I'd do No Sleep October rather than, like, once a week. I did it every weekday in October 2016, 
Um, you can, all those essays are on the Midwest Film Journal now. They're not on the Film Map anymore. Um, and I've retooled them a little bit. But in that year, I did, you know, It Follows. Um, I did Hellraiser 2 for the first time, Blur Witch Project for the first time, um, Event Horizon, uh, the Luigi Cozy version of Godzilla, the, the weird Italian one with the real war footage and gore spliced in. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I did it that year. Um, but even then, we, myself, Nick, Sam, and my wife, Allie, were thinking of leaving um, Film Yap for a variety of reasons. So then in mid-2017, we started Moonless Film Journal, uh, basically spoil it down so we could have more control over, over our uh, criticism and you know, the projects that we would do and the, the level of criticism that's being done at Midwest Film Journal, which isn't to, you know, shit on Film Yap by any means, but we just wanted to take it in a different direction, less emphasis on reviewing every movie that comes out and more emphasis on just writing usually longer form essays on the movies that we choose to write about. So like, if we don't want to review some piece of shit that came out this week, we're not going to review that piece of shit. Like, it's not worth our time to watch a bad movie um, there are just too many movies out there. Like even, you know, I, I write like I'm at 160 essays this year, but for the past few years, I write over a hundred, 120 essays a year. And like, I never even feel like I've scratched the surface of what I have to watch. I mean, the list only grows. So, you know, I, I'm trying to have, it's, it's hard now because so few like new movies are released in theaters, but like the one that I always go back to, uh, as the movie that broke me at a press screening where I was like, what the fuck am I doing here tonight? Well, it was Men in Black International a few years ago. <laughs> but I, was sitting there, I was watching it. So I had to review it. And I'm like, why the fuck did I even come here? Like, what am I doing here? Why am I reviewing Men in Black International? Like, so um, even before the pandemic killed off, you know, half, uh, killed off everything. Like we were already um, moving in the direction of not covering everything. So in any case, to, to be very long-winded and Joe about it. Back to, <laughs> one of the other things that we do with Midwest Film Journal is we have these essay projects and they're like the best thing that we do on our site. Um, we did a lot more last year than this year. We kind of tapered off this year because it's a lot of editorial work, but we have, and you know, you're on the list now and Joe's, Joe's always been on the list. Um, we come up with prompts and we ask people to come up with um you know, we did a Star Wars one a few years ago uh, where we very specifically did a series of essays where it was every other essay was either someone writing about one of the movies or a more general essay about Star Wars. And we got, you know, 15 essays that ran throughout December 2019. Um, the we you know, we we did uh, like Tilda Swinton essays last year. Keanu Reeves. We always have kind of a pun title just for fun. We did All You Need Is Vin for Vin Diesel. We did the Butler, did it for Gerard Butler. And these are purely excuses to get people I know who don't write very often to write something. Because um, I know, like, I talk about film with a lot of these friends all the time. But they just never write long-form essays because it, it's time-consuming or they, they don't feel confident in their writing. So um, we give them a prompt and say, give us one movie that you feel strongly about. Our only rules are, you know, don't don't wait, write shit takes because everywhere else on the internet writes shit takes. Um, you know, don't, 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 you know, we're, we're pretty politically liberal. So like, don't write Trumpy things, but like none of the people I know would do that. Um, but when we started in, 
early 2018, we did a five-month series once a week on all the Marvel movies up to that point. Because that's a really easy prompt. Everyone has seen those. You know, they were building up to Infinity War. We called it the Marvel Decade. We got a lot of good essays. And then later that year, I decided um, No Save October 2017 was really hard for me because I had a lot going on. Um, I didn't feel like I did my premise justice, so we opened it up to everyone else. And every year we have like 15 essays or so, give or take, by different writers. Uh, some have come, some have gone. Um, but everyone just chooses an essay, chooses a movie that hasn't been done before, writes an essay, and we, we, we get them up on the site. And it's just a nice way to get a diverse set of perspectives on a diverse number of movies, a lot of which I hadn't heard of before someone wrote about them. So anyway, that's my long answer. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. going to pause this real quick again. Evan, I'm sure. going to ask you to do me a favor. Yeah. Can you untwist your headphones because yeah. I can hear your beard like, sure. hitting your mic? Hey, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, tell me that if it's happening. No, it's good. <laughs> we'll be fine up to now. I just didn't want it to be the whole hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're good. No, 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 no. Sorry. Let no, me know if it happens. You're fine. I will. Um, but I, I want to I run through a few titles uh, before we just kind sure. of get into this because I'd like for you guys to talk about some of the movies that you've written about. Yeah. Um, and we can go from there, but I mean, I'm just going to literally quickly run through, uh, in 2013, you had like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Slither, The Orphanage, uh, Candyman, Rosemary's Baby, 2016, I'm not reading them all, but 2016, yeah. you had, uh, Alien Contamination, uh, Current Echo, which is a movie I've always been meaning to see and have yeah, not watched great. yet. It follows House, The Exorcist, uh, John Carpenter Trilogy, The Babadook, You're Next, 2017, you had Maniac, Beyond the Darkness. <laughs> Fuck you, Joe. <laughs> Anyways, uh, <laughs> Beyond the Darkness and Suspiria. I just know that was your doing. And then uh, 2018, I mean, you had, dude, there's so many. Cat People from 42, The yeah. Shining, Poltergeist 3, Scream, The Witch, The Fog. I'm only reading these, so listeners, if you're interested in any of these that I'm blazing through, go check them out on Midwest Film Journal. You got Freaks, The Beyond, um, all kinds of goodies here ravenous which i think you're a big fan of Evan. Yeah. i would love to actually talk about that first we'll get there in yeah. a second because i haven't seen that since probably before i was even into film so it's yeah. something i need to revisit but that's interesting uh in 2019 uh you guys did a whole bunch of stuff alien finally pops up pet cemetery from 89 yeah. gummo which is a hilarious pick <laughs> necromantic which i'm like uh, I, very excited yeah. that someone has necromantic what do you want to say I about gummo I want to want to stop and say so so um, a lot of years you know we this year's a little different we haven't first of all I want to say if if did I just get some lag there sorry okay, okay. Uh, I want to say if if any of your listeners are interested in doing a No Sleep October essay uh, we're always open to submissions you know we we will help edit and if you are open to it um, you know we'll help collaborate on writing an essay. If it's someone who doesn't write very often and needs help and is open to collaboration, we, we try to do as little rewriting as possible, but we do help bring your ideas out, collaborate on writing the essays, because really the, it's, it's about helping people write about film, because we love writing about film. But um, yeah, so some years I'll uh, be inspired to write about something, um, and Gummo was one of those, we included that in our Fuck yeah, Film Festival Halloween Marathon, which we can talk about later. But, you know, Gummo was upsetting. And I thought, well, I'll write about Gummo. And it's been it's the most read No Sleep October piece for some reason of all of them that have ever been done, even though it is in the piece, I admit, like, this is not a conventional 
pick for a horror thing, but it upset me because he eats spaghetti in the bathtub. So <laughs> it's not the <laughs> cat. Me, it's not the uh, cat being that. drowned. Not even the cat it's not. Being it's drowned. not the disabled person being nope. pimped out. It's the fucking <laughs> spaghetti in the bathtub. <laughs> Glass of milk. He has the candy bar. It's just that 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 of. I mean, you know, the whole movie is a little upsetting. But like, yeah. So anyway, sorry to to interrupt, but. Oh. Got no, well. it's fine. Yeah, I mean, you guys, you guys really kind of cleared the gamut here. Last year looks like uh, it was a really good one. You had it one and two. I'm assuming those were the newer ones. Uh, the Blair yeah. Witch Project. Uh, you have The Handmaid's Tale on here, which is an interesting choice. The Mist, which is yeah, like I don't know. That's one maybe we'll talk about. Uh, you have uh, Day of the Dead, which is an interesting choice. Um, I mean, it fits. But Jason goes to hell. I spit on your yeah. grave. I mean, if you guys are thinking of a horror movie. Uh, it's probably on here, but I was surprised because what I did is when you sent me a list of all of them, yeah, I just threw them in a Word doc and I just did Control F and I was just yeah. like putting movies I wanted to write about. You know what I mean? So yeah. I even still found a bunch, and that's the best part about this column is no matter how many you do, there's always more. Yeah, and yeah. there's some major ones we haven't really. Uh, there are a lot of major ones we haven't done yet. I mean, like you said, it took like two years for Alien to get an essay. Um, yeah, it's really, it's always fun to see what people come up with this year. Um, my, my, I've finished one this year. Usually uh, I just really, I just write all the time. Um, so most years I do more than one. Uh, the first one I did this year, Spooky Buddies, the Air Buddy Halloween movie. Yeah. I watched that last night, wrote about it, uh, which, uh, Joe, Joe is a huge fan of Spooky Buddies. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I found that out. He talked about that today he was telling us about that today and i and i i gave him a, a whole rash of it my kids love that movie and i i actually watched it with them several times and i was like this movie is killing me it's a weird, yeah. it's like it's, it, it's the weirdest thing about spooky buddies is that it's pretty much just a lift of hocus pocus but yeah. instead of being like euphemistic and you know joking about sex it's like super bible oriented yeah, Whoa. I was very, very confused by it. But yeah, I mean, by, this by the way, speaking of sorry to interrupt this, but I, I am contractually obligated by my girlfriend to mention that we just watched Hocus Pocus uh, last week. The first time I'd ever seen it. So really, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I yeah, yeah I, I enjoy that movie enough. I mean, I didn't watch it until yeah. I was dating Allie. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but, yeah, yeah, I, I grew is, up watching is, it on TV. Uh, and I, yeah. I always thought I was just like too good for it. And then I watched it with my wife. Yeah. So it looks uh -huh. like partners are just very helpful for this. I think because I looked yeah. at it with I watched it with my wife and my daughter, and I was like, "This movie's yeah. kind of fun. Like, I'm okay with it." <laughs> it's not yeah. for it's not for teenage boys, but if they watch it, you know, I, I will say as a brief plug, the uh, Franklin the Artcraft Theater is showing 35 mil Hocus Pocus this weekend. Um, I was actually there for the first time yesterday, and I had never been to the to the to the art craft theater down there, and it's pretty yeah. wonderful. So, you know, yeah, that's pretty cool. So, yeah. so Evan, I want you to tell me a little bit about your love for Ravenous, because, like sure. I said, I saw this years ago. I was a huge. I loved Memento so much at yeah. the time that I loved Guy Pierce. So I watched anything yeah. with Guy Pierce in it. And yeah. this movie has Guy Pierce in it. Would you like to tell us a little bit about why you like it and a little bit about the movie? Uh, well, uh, a few years back, I got super into Guy Pierce. He's my favorite actor. Um, and I watched everything that he had done up to 2010, which is about when I got into him. 
Um, it was a mixture of various movies, mostly Priscilla Queen of the Desert, but also Memento that made me super into his his work. I actually have a an intermittent column uh, called My Guy on the website where I'm going through all of Guy Pierce's performances slowly. Uh, originally, I was going to do it weekly in 2020, but then when the pandemic hit, I just couldn't muster up the uh, the humor that I try to lace into the column because it's pretty creepy. Um, <laughs> otherwise. Uh, but Ravenous is, is one that, that I watched for the first time during that initial burst of, of watching all of Guy Pierce's work. Um, and I've, I mean, I wrote about it a little bit in 2018 because I showed it to Joe and Nick and Sam and Mitch Ringenberg, who are all the, the FYFF guys. Uh, and then I did a longer essay about it last year. Um, it's just one of a kind horror movie. Like it's a weird Western which there are not enough good weird westerns anyway, where that that play off the that play off all of the ideals of that you see in western movies, but but really lean into the horror, but not even in the way that like Bone Tomahawk plays into horror, where it's pretty straightforward, like just brutal violence, uh, a little bit of suspense, but like the goofiness of Ravenous, like it just it, it really embraces the. The, the frontier aspect of, of the wild West and like these men against nature and against themselves, except now there's a Wendigo played by Robert Carlyle, who's eating Guy Pierce and, um, and what's his face? The guy who plays dumb, dumb Dugan and Dylan justified season three. <laughs> yeah. He's uh, <laughs> what's his he's name? McDonough. God, McDonough. Yeah, McDonough. Yeah. yeah. But, um, and, and the soundtrack by Michael Nyman and, and David Albarn is like one of a kind like horror soundtrack. I don't know if you've ever heard the Ravenous soundtrack, but it's fucking amazing. <laughs> like it is one of the best soundtracks for any movie ever. But, you know, it, it's, it's also just so great in the context of the film. And like the film's production was so troubled. I mean, Antoine Bird, who was directing it, there's like she got kicked off and Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle like refused to make the rest of the movie without her being brought on. And like there were budget cuts and they were shooting in Eastern Europe and, you know, as a stand in for the snowy mountains. And it was just like, a, I don't know, all of it comes together. It's just like such an, an amazingly unique film. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's one of my favorite films, period. So, yeah. Yeah. As seen on Letterboxd, which when I looked on there yeah. to see what your FYFF stuff was, yeah. you were like, hey, go check it out. And I saw Ravenous as one yeah. of your like top yeah. ones. And dude, mm-hmm. it's one I have to revisit. It's funny because uh, Antonia Bird hasn't like really done much of anything else other than TV no. and a, a handful of movies, none of which I even, I might know them if I look at the covers, but I don't know them by name. Yeah. They're too generic, like Face or Mad yeah, Love, or Priest. Like, I don't know any of these uh, by name, but the cast also is surprising because you have yeah. Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle, like you mentioned, but David Arquette's in it, Jeremy Davies, who I love, uh, Jeffrey Jones, uh, which is awesome and weird, yeah, uh, John you know. Spencer, um, John Neil Spencer's McDonough. in a movie, I think. Say what? I think it was John Spencer's last movie performance, too. Oh, it oh. may have been. This is in 1999, um, and basically, uh, it takes place in a remote military outpost in 19th century where uh, Captain John Boyd and his regiment embark on a rescue mission, which takes a dark turn when they are ambushed by a sadistic cannibal. Yeah. And if that doesn't make and you want to see it, I don't know I, what does. 
And I love the fact, and I write about this in the essay uh, I wrote last year. It was one of the last few No Sleep Octobers from last year. Is that John Boyd, Guy Pierce's John Boyd, is a was a fucking coward. Like he's a coward through and through. He'd never. It's not a story about this this coward learning inner strength. Like it's not about this this man who. I mean, the movie opens with him in the Mexican-American War, hiding under a pile of his dead compatriots, and their blood rushes into his mouth and gives him the Wendigo strength. Um, and it terrifies him. And he's traumatized by the fact of, you know, he, he, he eats the blood on accident, gets the strength of the Wendigo, and massacres a Mexican pillbox and becomes a war hero. And because... The you know John Spencer's captain knows he was a coward. He ships him off to Fort Spencer so they can give him an award for all the other troops to see. Oh, here's a guy who did it all on his own, and then they get rid of him. Uh, and he's just never brave. I mean, even in the end, he 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 does some self-sacrificing stuff, but he's still a coward. And like that's what Guy Pierce is is good for. Is like as an actor, he's so good at playing smarmy characters and like emotional characters. Like he's just not made to play action roles or like heroic roles. Like you can see it in Lockout or uh, Zone Four One Four is his most recent movie is a total piece of shit. Like, <laughs> I mean, I still watch every guy, every movie Guy Pierce is in. Um, I'll watch, and he's, you know. Have you covered The Rover yet? Which is not a horror movie. I, I, I like him and Pattinson in The Rover, but I don't like The Rover. Okay, all right. Yeah. I, I did. I did write about it. It's it's one that I wish I liked more because Animal Kingdom is immaculate. Like yeah. that movie, fucking incredible too. Mm-hmm. But um, and his mustache is on point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Joe, like, I, I want to. Evan, go ahead if you had something else to say. No, it's okay. Okay, uh, Joe. Uh, what are some of the titles that you've covered? Tell us at least one, and tell us a little bit about. Yeah. It. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I did. Um, uh, you know, in, in terms of No Sleep October, I did The Fog and I did uh, The Descent. Um, I think those are the, the only two I've done of uh, for those those couple of years. Hopefully yeah. you um, did the uh, 1980 The Fog. Oh, no, the Welling version is the only version of The Fog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. No, of course I did the no, 1980 version Let's of talk the about fog. that because we've talked about The Descent uh, uh-huh. almost a year ago, which I still can't believe. Wow. But when we did our top 15, yeah. that was on yours. So, yeah. uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about the fog. What'd you, what'd you write yeah, about yeah. and why should people watch it? Yeah. Yeah. The fog was, you know, is, is another of one of my, of my favorite horror movies. One of, one of the, the real early ones that, you know, that for me as, you know, as a kid, I remember seeing it, I don't know, it was on the early days of cable. My grandparents had, um, you know, cable, like in the early eighties before anybody really did. You know, it was like it was the big treat at the time, you know, when I, I'd go to my grandparents house and they had the little the little box with this little weird clicker on it that you had to like drag it across the, you know, you had to drag across this box to, to change channels. And uh, and I, somewhere along the way there, they had recorded it on VHS or something. Um, but I, I had the fog and, and I, I saw it and was just mesmerized by it. It's, it, you know, it's it's one of John Carpenter's, I, I think it's. I'd call it one of his kind of lesser known movies. I think, you know, it's, it's obviously not Halloween. It, it was made on the heels of Halloween. Um, 
but it's just fantastic. It's so atmospheric. And, you know, it's, I mean, if you, you, again, this is one that you you have to have, have to know, but it's, you know, it's essentially a, the, the story of, of this small town in California, a coastal town. Um, and they're about to celebrate their centennial. And um, the, uh, you know, as they're preparing these parties and everything for the, you know, the hundredth birthday of this town, uh, this, this fog kind of rolls in at night and, uh, you, you find out that they have a dirty secret that there was a uh, a colony of lepers who had approached the the town's fathers, you know, a hundred years ago as the town was becoming a town, and they uh, they said, "Hey, we'd like to move in," uh, you know, like I don't know, a couple miles up the road, you know, basically, like we want to be your neighbors. Um, we, we won't bother you none. We just want you know a plot of land to call our own, and the the. The, the head of the town was was a priest. It was Father Malone, I believe. Um, and he was like, okay, sure, that's fine. Um, yeah, we'll we'll set up our, our lighthouse for you. And, and uh, you know, so when your ship gets in, you guys have, you know, you guys know where to land. Well, what they actually did was they turned off the lighthouse and the, the ship crashed into the rocks and everybody on the boat died. So their ghosts are in the fog and they, they kill you know, they basically come back to kill people now. That's so, so tight. Real uh, quick, but, but I'm going to interrupt you because I just want to say yeah. that, and you might yeah. get to this, and I want you to talk about it if you want, but Adrian Barbeau, Janie Lee Curtis, mm-hmm. and Janet Lee are all in this, as well as Hal Holbrook, which is always great. Um, yeah. But what a and cast, the great, too. The great Tom Atkins. Tom Atkins, yep. Have you seen The Fog? I was just about to get there. Uh, this is one yeah. of Carpenter's I haven't watched yet, I, actually. I, I was in the same boat up to two weeks ago, and then I was browsing Amazon Prime. I wanted something I hadn't seen from someone I liked, and I and the fog is on Amazon Prime. I watched it two two times in two nights. I was really yeah. taken with it. Wow. Like, it's not one of his best, but like you should absolutely watch. It. But one of his best scores, like, yeah, he does all the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. But it's absolutely. man, I would like to see what you think of it. Yeah, yeah, well, I'll say this real quick, Evan. I, I relate yeah. to you a lot with the way that you got into horror because I was always, I don't like horror movies and I don't like yeah. modern comedies. That was always when I first got yeah. into it, I just didn't care. Like, fuck The Hangover. Yeah. Fuck all these horror movies. I don't care. And then it wasn't until I, I'm a huge Kubrick fan. I've got a tattoo of yeah. collage of Kubrick stuff. It's like my favorite filmmaker. And I saw The Shining. And yeah. I ended up going to conferences and talking about The Shining. Like, like yeah. that was a huge thing. And then I watched Carpenter's The Thing. And then I watched yeah. The Exorcist. And then I just really started going like, holy shit, I actually love horror. But I just, I have, yeah. if it's good to me at least, right, yeah. I'm going to love it. And if I don't, I'm probably yeah. going to be harsh on it. <laughs> yeah. But so with you, I had to get caught up and I'm still getting caught up with a lot of them. Like I just saw... Um, I just saw Phantasm for the first time this year, like a few months ago. Um, and, and a few movies, I saw Candyman for the first time, like things like that, where, um, I had never watched these movies before, but, uh, yeah, I'm starting to get caught up, uh, with a lot of the classics. Go ahead. Last year I watched through all of the Phantasm movies and actually the last notes of October that's been published is an essay I wrote on Bubba Hotep, which is like Don Coscarelli's best movie. But his the whole the five phantasm movies are such an interesting example of DIY horror filmmaking that like doesn't go the right in a way like they're great. All five of them. I love them all. But like Don Coscarelli's 
I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. It's like the Nega Sam Raimi. Like Raimi makes Evil Dead, right? And and that he makes that after you know Phantasm came out. And Phantasm's great. Phantasm is weird as shit. It's completely original. It's completely indie. Um, and then Evil Dead comes out. And then Evil Dead Two comes out. And Raimi hits the big time. Then Phantasm Two comes out. Phantasm Two has so much in common with them wanting to make Reggie Bannister, the ice cream man, kind of like Ash. Like he gets a four, he gets a, he gets a, he gets a four barreled shotgun. Like it's overtly playing <laughs> on the tropes from like that were popularized by like the, the horror hero in, in the eighties. But then like Phantasm two, I believe was successful, but none of the further Phantasm movies, like it's not a situation where like Raimi then got to make army of darkness. Right. And then, <laughs> rights issues and disinterest kept them from making further ash stuff but like they just kept making phantasm movies for less and less and less and less money which meant they had to get more and more like imaginative and like playful uh and then the fifth one is is very much like bubba hotep but for this reggie bannister character um who's played by just a dude named reggie who's made phantasm movies for his whole life every few years with his buddies um Anyway, sorry to get off on a tangent. No, that's great. I was not by those movies last year. Like, I really loved them. Um, well, first off, I remember loving Bubba Hotep, but again, that's another one I haven't seen since probably before I was into film yeah. even, so it's one I want to revisit. But two, yeah. that's a big blind spot of mine, and Joe, I do want to get back to you, but um, I'll say mm-hmm. this real quick. It's a big blind spot of mine is uh, sequels to famous movies. So I've seen yeah. probably all of the Nightmare on Elm Street's, but I haven't sure. seen all the Friday the 13th. My wife and I have worked through them. I know you guys just you did a yeah. long Friday the 13th uh, mm-hmm. thing on, on Midwest Film Journal. But I haven't seen any of the sequels to Halloween. I haven't. Well, except for like, yeah, whatever you call these newer ones, but sure. none of the originals. I mean, I, yeah. I want to watch like reanimator sequels, even though yeah. regardless of whether they're good, <laughs> I don't care. Like, <laughs> You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I want to see, totally. I'm, I'm excited to finally start exploring a lot of these random sequels. Yeah. Cause even if the movies suck, like you can look on YouTube and watch clips of like the effects can be fucking awesome or yeah. like the creatures yeah. can be really imaginative. And that alone can at least make it worth me seeing regardless of whether it's, the movie's um, good. So yeah. I've, not to talk talk with keep Joe out, but I, I just have two two tangents from what you were saying that are interesting. First of all, um, I years back I did all the Fridays, all the Halloweens, all the nightmares. This is a long time ago. Like it feels like ages ago because of 2020. Uh, but uh, I was gifted the Friday the 13th Blu-ray set from Screen Factory last year. Uh, Mitch Ringenberg um, had had an extra and gave it to me. And um, so I've been rewatching through them with the new restorations. I think the first three are 4K restorations, um, not true 4K, but just the restorations are really beautiful. And then um, all of the gore that was cut from the movies, except for part seven of Friday the 13th, um, which is impossible to restore, has been restored to a lot of the movies. So I'm, I, I just finished eight in my gradual rewatch of all the Friday movies. But all the Friday movies, like the level of fun and quality to those movies, even the bad ones, is fucking glorious. Those movies are all great. Halloween, not so much. Most of the Halloween movies are fucking terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Second second tangent is, so Sam Watermeyer and I, since 2019, have helped Heartland Film Festival. Uh, Greg Sorvig is a a friend of ours. Yeah, he was um, on last week's episode, actually. Yeah, yeah, I know. And he he said he had a really good time on your show. Um, I was talking to him about it because I told him I was was coming on this week. And um, he reached out to us a few years ago. 
because uh, we've always covered Heartland at Midwest Film Journal and we're just friends with Greg. He's a great guy. Um, and he was like, do you want to help us program Heartland Horror? Just do like a small slate of films each year at shorts and in the in the uh, in the main festival in October, um, go through the horror submissions and see which ones are great. Because just like every in every film festival, most of the indie films are kind of difficult to work with, and horror especially in the in full length. Like sometimes it really does just hinge on whether they nail the effects for the monster or like the tone of the movie. Um, Spot on, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and like the the shorts are way honestly easier because with a short you can get you know mileage for making a really cool vampire is is for a two minute short or a ten minute short is like we did one short this year axe to the face and my entire criteria when I booted it up was I'm like is someone actually going to get an axe to the face and the gore <laughs> they did for the axe to the face was so good I was like Sam we got to program axe to the face <laughs> <laughs> but um. This year, uh, we have a few really cool uh, entries, one of which has a really big gore moment, uh, The Alternate, which is mostly just kind of a cool sci-fi horror drama. It has a gore moment in it that was so, like, it doesn't even look realistic, but it looks fake in the way that a horror movie should look. Like, it's (laughs) so, it's such a good gore moment. Like, you know those aren't human intestines, but, like, it doesn't matter. Like, it looks, it's just perfect. But um, yeah, sorry to, to tangent, but people, if you are able, should watch our Harlan Horror Slate this year. It's the best we've done. Uh, the One of the headliners is What Josiah Saw, um, which uh, features Robert Patrick helping his uh, mentally handicapped son jerk off. Um, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers. That's pretty early on. Just, you should see the the look on Austin's face. No, I've already heard that that synopsis. I've already heard that. Austin was just like no, no, his no. face was like went frozen for a minute. He was like, "What the hell did he just say?" No, I had to process what was yeah. said. I had to make sure what I thought you said was said, um, and then I also didn't uh. want to interrupt you. Um, but that is. Uh, Certainly it's, interesting, uh, yeah. You know, I, I throw that out there, but but what Josiah saw is legitimately like super creepy, super intense. Has Nick Stahl, who hasn't been around for a while, uh, yeah. Tony Hale in a surprisingly did like straightforward role, given that he's always everyone's go-to goofy guy. Uh, Ronnie Gene Blevins is in it, and Robert Patrick, uh, obviously. But it's uh, it's really good. Yeah, all yeah. of our horror movies are pay for Heartland horror tickets. So that we can keep doing it for them, because they're a great fest run by great people. Yeah, so. yeah. No, we, we we pitched it big time last week too, because yeah. uh, I I was an intern at Heartland way back when, yeah. like 2013 or something, and sure. it was just like a, such a great experience. And I, I did the sh- I programmed shorts, but still, it was yeah. like such a great experience. And I always love to like yeah. make sure can to I get some what, words in. Can I tell? Sorry to interrupt you. I didn't mean to interrupt You're fine. you, Go ahead. but. Uh, let me tell you a Harlan horror story from the first screening we ever did. So we did Peter Strickland's in fabric. Have you ever seen Duke of Burgundy? Yeah. So did you ever see his follow his horror follow up in fabric? I didn't know. God, it's such a good, movie. It's so yeah. good, but it's exactly What's that called what again? in fabric. Okay. T- tell us it's, about uh, it. I'm going to put it on the I list mean, here. It's so let, let me yeah, say, Joe said, Joe should. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me just say that I have, we have talked about it on this, I believe on this podcast during our, Last year, our, our best of the year. I think I had it at my at number two on my list last year. You did not have this on your number two. Your number two was The Descent, idiot. 
No, not horror movies. My best of 2020. Oh, this was your number two? <laughs> Did we, didn't we do that? Yeah. We, <laughs> Maybe it's the other podcast. This was Maybe your number two? <laughs> How do I not remember I mean, yeah. that? No, I, I mean, I, uh, I believe you. I just, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Tell us about so, it. Yeah. So, uh, so it, it's basically about a dress that kills people. Yeah. So, and and the movie is so much weirder than that synopsis. It is uh, a haunt. It's a haunted shopping mall, sort of. No, okay. It's a coven that uses sales to bring people in. To yeah. do what with them? We'll leave it to your your viewing pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's there's a there's a scene with a a menstruating mannequin and there's a guy. There's also. Go ahead. There's also a Jackie. You're right. There's a Jackulet in that one too. I'm not yeah. saying it's a running theme for Sam and I, but right. it seems to be. I need to. <laughs> I'm also, need to not saying it's not. But yeah. so we walk. So we go to see In Fabric, and it's the preview for Harlan Horror back in 2019. So we launched it. We announced it at the end in 2019 with In Fabric because Greg was able to secure it, um, and we we announced that we would be doing it in 2020 and then you know given the pandemic last year was awesome and this year was awesome for for horror too so we've per, we've fully programmed four shows with heartland now it's always a great experience but in fabric uh um julia ritchie had sam and i get up talk about midwest film journal there weren't very many people there because it was i mean heartland 2019 was insane anyway i mean even though this year makes 2019 look like yesterday's news like in Fabric was a Wednesday night, 9 p.m. showing. So there weren't that many people there, but there were enough that it was a full theater of people who had no fucking idea what was going on. Me laughing, because I'd seen it already. Joe having fun. Um, Sam being like, what the fuck? I mean, everyone who'd already seen it was like just laughing, because it's so fucking out there. Uh, but of course, the main Heartland audience who was there is like uh, old people. So we're walking, we're walking out. This tiny old lady walks up to me and is like, "Were you the guy who was up front in front of that movie? That you made, you brought that movie?" I was like, "Yeah." And she was like, "That was terrible. You should be ashamed of yourself. That was the worst <laughs> movie I've ever seen in my life." That She's is like awesome. A cop me in front of all the other IFJA members, <laughs> it was it was great. But you have that's to take, you have to take some pride in that. That's like that's like a, a badge of honor, right? Yeah, I mean, if Heartland Horror was a bunch of movies people were completely nonplussed about, like, whatever. Like, mm -hmm. I'm glad that these are movies that we were able to bring the movies that make people, you know, have a reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, well, I was going to say that's, that's to me, is one of the, that's been one of my favorite things about film festivals and, and Heartland, maybe even in particular, is that every now and again, you'll, you'll catch a movie that, is just so off the wall you know, yeah. for, for any number of reasons. Sometimes it's just, sometimes they're, you know, sometimes they're very amateurishly made and sometimes they're very well made, you know, and there's yeah. big, and, and this year, especially we have a lot, there's a lot of really, really big movies uh, with, with huge Hollywood stars. And, um, and then every once in a while, you'll see a movie like, I remember one year, just a couple of years ago, the guy who played Proctor in the police Academy movies was in a short or something. And I was like, what the, I was like, who the hell is that guy? Who's, you know, this is like 25 years after the fact. And I'm like, that's Proctor from P the police Academy. It's like, how random is that? <laughs> and, you know, it's like that guy, I don't know even know when that guy acted last, but he, here he is in a movie. Now it's, it's coming out 
in somewhere. Maybe, it, maybe I don't know if it ever saw the light of day. I don't even remember what movie it was. But you know, there's there's yeah. just some movies like that, and they're just they're just gems. You know, it's just they're great little there's treasures some, to, to watch. So I I don't know if if you you did this. Uh oh, you silly. Yeah. yeah, you're good. Dude. You hear me? Sorry, my <laughs> yeah. computer. I got a pop up, and I was like, um, I, I don't know if if you had. You know, they send out some press access links to, to people on their list every year. Um, mm-hmm. I've written eight reviews so far for some of the smaller releases of Heartland this year. Um, there's some really good stuff, like just really some out there stuff. Um, they've done such a good job on like every level this year. Like, And yeah, the thing is, you never know. I mean, these movies go to festivals to try to get picked up and they <clears throat> may never get picked up. You may end up they may end up disappearing on Amazon Prime or YouTube someday but like it's really cool that they you know they get a chance to be seen um i want to ask austin if you weren't super into horror how did you end up choosing from beyond of all things to write about for for no sleep october this year because that is a heck of a and that's a it's a graphic well, is a horror, so horror i, movie. I yeah. loved graphic horror i just thought horror movies were terrible and oh, okay and they didn't scare me and I didn't think yeah. they were cool, but I also hadn't seen so Enough. much. And when I say back then, I mean before 2010. Yeah. Like this sure. is long before. Sure. So I remember, I remember I saw uh, The Shining, which made me really appreciate a film like as a movie proper, you know. Sure. But then I watched, um, then I saw Dead Alive from Peter Jackson because I was a big That's, Peter Jackson fan. I yeah. went back and watched all of them, you know, meet the feebles and all the yeah. early stuff, you know, like ridiculous. Yeah. <clears throat> and I watched dead alive and dead alive then became my favorite horror movie ever, even though it's more of a slapstick comedy pretty much. Hey, but I just it's... loved, loved, loved the gore in it and just how yeah. they did all the effects and how just like awesome it looked to me. Like just yeah. not even just the lawnmower scene in like the main room, uh, where he's literally walking around just mowing people, literally mowing sure. people down. Sure. It was just like the creativity of shoving some lady's head onto like a light bulb socket and then her yeah. head lighting up or like a zombie punching through someone's head and their hand coming out of their mouth and all these editing tricks. Like you can tell yeah. how it's done, but the precision in which it's done was so yeah. impressive. So then like seeing these schlocky horror movies like that and just really learning to appreciate them. And then I saw Reanimator. Yeah, and I was a huge fan of Rihanna. Still am. I I think that is just yeah. goddamn perfect. I just love it. But then that got me on Stuart Gordon. So then I watched yeah. From Beyond next. Sure, loved it. I think Reanimator is better, but I love From Beyond. Like that. It's just like pick a day, right? Like I don't yeah. know which one I like yeah. more. Um, but then after that, I started watching a couple more, and I wasn't into them. Um, but yeah. the Stuart Gordon stuff I watched was way later. So I need to go back yeah. and watch stuff like The Pit and the Pendulum and some of those earlier yeah. uh, kind of horror movies that he did in the early 90s. They might be pretty cool. But that's just kind of like the progression. And then then it just yeah. – I was really into like kind of like schlocky or comedy horror movies that were really well sure. done like Reanimator. But also everyone's kind of self-aware and in on the joke. Mm-hmm. Um, I was – I'm not as big a fan anymore, but I was like a huge fan. So I remember it's 2009 when I really started getting into it because I saw Drag Me to Hell. And yeah. being a Raimi fan, um, I just rewatched it and I didn't like it as much as I used to, but I still enjoy it. Uh, but I just loved how, like just the tone of that, how everyone plays it so straight. 
Yeah. But it's like mm-hmm. funny. You know what I mean? <laughs> like and yeah. um yeah, and of course you brought up Evil Dead. I went back and watched those and I got really into that whole thing. But then it was films like uh what's the one? Um well stuff like Wreck. Like I actually saw the American remake Quarantine first. Yeah. And it was just I liked Dexter, Dexter's sisters in it. I got yeah. it from this video store I worked at at the time, just just because it was like some DVD yeah. for like ninety nine cents. It was just super cheap, and I I still love Quarantine. I fucking love that movie, but yeah. Wreck is just better. <laughs> like so yeah. if you watch the original, it's just the exact same but better. Um, Have you seen Wreck Wreck Two? Yes. So I've only seen the first two. Yeah. I'm gonna do oh, a marathon. I, I want to yeah. do a marathon of all of them just because. Um, but sure. I know that the first two. Like, I like them in order from what I've yeah. seen so far. I like the yeah. first one the best. The second one is cool. I wish it didn't give try to explain away so much. That kind of yeah. hurts it a bit, but it's a kick-ass fucking movie, dude. Like, just in yeah. terms of experience, it's really cool. Do yeah. you dig it? I really like uh, – I think I did – yeah, and it was funny because you, you're the one who had to point out to me because I completely forgot that I – that I had I'd done Wreck and Wreck 2. Because um, I was going to write for it this year. Yeah. October. But yeah, yeah, I yeah, I had a friend, my friend Nate Cancilla, who's DJ in excess um, in Indianapolis, but he was a half price books coworker with me, and he was always always considered him like my my schlock guide. So when I was I hadn't gone deep into the well, and in one Halloween, he was like, "You have to see Wreck and Wreck Two. It's like the best movie plus movie sequel ever." And like I, I didn't think it was quite like that level, but like they're great. Like yeah. so that that's how I ended up seeing those. Um, I love I love both of them. It's been so long though. I mean, it's been since 2013, and I watch 500 movies a year, so I can almost barely remember them anymore. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, the the one horror recommendation I'd make for my No Sleep October uh, journey over the past eight years or whatever, uh, the one that I think about the most from the early days is Pontypool. Yeah, I saw that on your Pontypool. list. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a radio station radio engineer stuck in his booth talking in a mic like YouTube bozos and sorry. And, um, <laughs> and, and starts getting, you know, calls that things are happening out in the outside world. He thinks it's a hoax. Slowly he starts to realize it isn't a hoax, but he's stuck in the booth. He can't leave the booth. So it's, it's a Canadian horror film. It's super low budget. He can't leave the booth. It's one, basically one set for the whole movie. The entire thing is atmosphere and, 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 you know, him hearing things happening outside of where he is and trying to stay sane. I think about that movie all the time. Like, yeah. years later, like, I, I occasionally hover over the, the novel it was based off of just to see, you know, if it's time to read it. But I buy more books than I can possibly read, so. Yeah. Uh, no, the, the thing about that, something I love about a lot of the horror movies that I like uh, yeah. and Joe, I'll be curious how you feel about th- this kind of concept because mm-hmm. it's all about execution, right? If you can get a story that takes place in one location or maybe two, like very, very uh, small amount of settings, and you can make it interesting from beginning to end, I think that says so much about you. So even going back to Wreck, that whole yeah. movie takes place in a very small apartment complex. At first, all the doors are locked except for one. When they go in there, yeah. there's a zombie, like, you know, uh, or yeah. what, well, it, it kind of, wh- whatever you want to call them, right? Um, but we won't talk about that because people can go watch them. But, like, so, you know, you find the one, but then 
the you know they go back downstairs and then they finally unlock this door and they get into this place and like they just it's like all in this very small setting but they just keep kind of unlocking these new spaces that they can explore and go into and hide until of course the the finale which i think man joe if we ever did a horror like favorite endings to horror movies like if we ever did a top five list mm-hmm. i just don't know if I could not put wreck on it because the <laughs> the end of that movie that dude so I was in the hospital and my partner at the time had a blood clot we were just in there for a few days so I was watching movies when she was asleep and I was watching movies on my laptop and I put wreck on this is the first time I ever watched it in a hospital just sitting on this uncomfortable chair and I remember like different points in the movie I would get so tense Cause that movie is all tension and I would get so tense that the next day my body was sore because like I kept tensing up and then I would tell myself to calm down and I'd like shrug it off. And then I would just get, I'd find myself tense again five minutes later because like, that's what that movie is. And part of it is all of those, like, like everything's close quarters, you know, but that ending where it's just night vision and it's this camera. And it's one of those movies that actually does found footage. Well, in terms of there's a reason when someone stops, uh, yes. like when something cuts, it's just turning off the camera and on. And I, I just think it's it's so well done. But like Joe, what are some if you can think of movies or you can talk about wreck? Yeah. Like what are how do you feel about like small locations or like one set horror movies or I mean, yeah. can you think of many good ones? Because I think it's very I'm, easy I'm well, to ruin those too. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I I always feel like some of the some of those best horror movies are are the ones where you know things things get real cozy real fast. You know, like I mean, I, I you know I think about the Descent, which doesn't you know which obviously takes place in more than one area, but the main you know the main action is in this cave, and you know and it's you know these really like in you know, of varying sizes you know these little caverns of varying sizes, and it feels very small and contained, and that's that's one is just that's one that. You know, when the first time I saw it, I was not expecting it. I mean, I've talked about that movie on this podcast, but it's, you know, the the claustrophobia of that movie is insane. Um, even stuff like, I mean, you know, one that springs to mind is Halloween, just the end of it, you know, where they're, you know, you're in a house and, and it's not, and a lot of houses and in, in, even in horror movies have this feeling of being big. You know, if you think about your typical Friday the 13th, if they're in yeah. a house, there's a lot of, there's always room to run. It seems like, but <laughs> yeah. you know, but Halloween, you know, is in this small house with narrow hallways and, you know, and, and that just magnifies the claustrophobia. So it's, yeah, it's so much, it's, it's really important, honestly, in, in a horror film to, you know, to have, you know, you have this, you want to have this showdown, have it in a, in, in a smaller and more enclosed space than, than in an open area. Yeah. I, and, I, and I remember when I was writing for the film Yap, uh, when you brought me on, it was, it was probably 2015 or something, and I was mm-hmm. doing my column. I had one uh, called Cinema Blind Spots, which I've talked about on here, mm-hmm. and I was basically just finding like classics of some kind, whether it be critical classics or pop culture classics mm-hmm. or whatever, and I remember I did Scream. I had never seen Scream until like 2014 yeah. or 15, going back, Evan, to me missing, yeah. like you, a lot yeah. of the, the classics, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was a big Wes Craven fan, and um, I had seen New Nightmare, and you know uh, everything I knew about Scream kind of seemed 
Like they were kind of, yeah, they're different, but they're kind of tackling similar kind of in jokes on horror and whatnot. And I just never went out of my way to see it. And then I finally watched it and I loved it. But here's the thing, Joe, back to what you were saying. What I love, when I think of Scream, I don't think of the phone call at the beginning. I don't think of, you know, all of the the kind of classic scenes or all the self-aware in jokes, the the meta shit. I What I love about Scream is the close quarters where you have a villain who's flawed, uh, you know, mm-hmm. ghost faces tripping over shit and falling over the couch yeah. and running yeah. into the tables and and tripping over the bed and the person's barely getting away and they grab at the pants and they just barely kick away. I mean, that is just masterful tension and it's something that Craven yeah. was always good at, even in Nightmare on Elm Street and things, even in the bad ones. <laughs> I mean, when I say bad yeah. ones, it's like sure. I, I actually enjoy watching them all to an extent. But you know what I yeah. mean? Like even some of the more ridiculous yeah. ones. Um, but yeah, I, just to make your, just to add to your point, Joe, I, I'm a, mm-hmm. you brought up some good examples. I'm a huge, a yeah. huge fan of like, of that type of tension. Um, yeah. but I want to, I want to jump over to the FYFF thing. Sure. Uh, you, you were, mm-hmm. you were going to bring it up earlier, Evan. You said we talk about it later. I want to make sure I leave some room yeah. for us to talk a little bit about what you guys do. This is like a, a, a closed in, in group of people that you have that do this yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe can start. Joe was <laughs> yeah. the masterminds of it in 2016, all mm-hmm. those years ago. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we and kind of. I guess it just kind of grew out of of you know our our buddy Nick Nick Rogers and and I are are old codgers. Uh, you know, I'm a little older than him, but um, uh, you know, and and Evan and Sam were were you know young bucks that were out you know. Watching the watching yeah. the watching the horror movies with their Dan Fogelberg and their their rock music and their you know all that stuff. So you know we we were just oh the you know the back in my day Keanu Reeves was a surfer in arm you know in arm action movies and yeah. Patrick Swayze you know was this you know and so yeah. it, you know it it turned into just basically like we have to have kind of a fest where we're we're all we all contribute a little something. A movie or two, and um, the the first year um, was at my house. It's been at my house a couple of several times. We we kind of rotate a bit um, between between um, mine and Evans and and Nick's mostly. Um, Sam has an apartment, so that's not really as much an option uh, most times. But uh, well, I want to interject real quick. That first year was primarily because you and Nick were practically offended that Sam and I hadn't seen Point Break. We yeah. hadn't seen Roadhouse, which was going on <laughs> midnight at Landmark. Uh, yeah. You showed us. I mean, uh, we hadn't seen the Lethal Weapons, uh, mm-hmm. which was Sunday. It was all four Lethal Weapons. Um, yeah. God, what else did we watch? Blind Fury, Showdown in Little Tokyo, yeah. um, Black Dog. Uh-huh. Sorry, yeah. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so there are all these just really, like, mostly terrible or terribly memorable, you know, action movies. And, yeah, we so we, we were at my house. Um, Nick slept over at my house um, that first year and Evan and Sam both live a little closer. So they, yeah. um, you know, they, they bounced in and out. Um, well, they, well, I was going to say bounced in and out. They, they showed up early in the morning. <laughs> well, we did that too. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and we, we just sat and watched movies all day for the weekend. Um, and then as, as uh, Evan said, we went to roadhouse um, at midnight at, at um, the, the Keystone art cinema here, the landmark yeah. uh, theater here. And, uh, uh, had a great time with it. Um, somehow I mostly managed to stay awake, um, but not, not completely. But, um, 
Yeah, yeah we bought, and, and it was it was amazing to me because it was, you know, the the gist of it was that Nick I had seen all these movies and they hadn't, yeah. but the reality of it was that there were a lot that I hadn't seen, and some of them yeah. were a surprise and some, you know, so it was it was so much fun and, and that we decided to do it again and again and again, and then yeah. we added a horror component and uh, just lots of lots of great movies we've seen over the years. Yeah, I mean, um, sorry, ahead. don't let me yeah. hear it, Joe. I'm sorry, I don't want to. Yeah. No, go. So we we added the horror component um, the first year. Um, their goal was to show me shit that would terrify me. I mean, that year we did The Descent for the first time, uh, Mothman mm-hmm. Prophecies, The Fly, Lost Boys. We did The Strangers, the home invasion one. That really bothered me. Yeah. yeah. Then we used to do a, you know, before I had a, before I had a kid and every, I mean, everyone's lives have become more complicated. So like... Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest one we ever did was Fuck Yeah Film Festival 3, which was Island of Misfit Joys. Uh, <laughs> that one I hosted at my house. Um, and, you know, over the years, like, we, you know, usually I would say Nick and I are the ones who do the long haul. We do pretty much all the movies. And Joe, Sam, and Mitch Ringenberg, who joined us for the third one on, uh, join in, um, you know, based on availability. Sure. Um, but we don't do as many multi-days. Now, with Island Miss with Joys, we did 20 films in three days, including Hudson Hawk, Bullet to the Head, uh, Bullet Head, Cull, Beastmaster, I think. Yeah. Uh, Fre- Freddy Got Fingered. Um, uh, <laughs> Tiptoes, which everyone tells me isn't wasn't an official FYFF movie because I watched it before they woke up. But that's the one <laughs> where Gary Oldman plays a short person falling in love with Kate Beckinsale. Uh, it's a little weird. Um but yeah, for the horror component, I mean, we're, we're going to do, uh, you know, the last time we were able to do that was 2019. We did pin, uh, gummo from beyond. Um, uh, we did quite a few, um, sh- the dumbass short films that Sam found, including one about a, a urinal cake that ate dicks. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> our modern, our con- ever since the fourth one, we, we made a rule that we couldn't do movies that were longer than 90 minutes. With yeah. some some leeway for something that might be a little longer, but but that way everyone brings one movie ninety minutes or less. We can get it done in an afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and this year, uh, Nick Rogers has been hyping a pick he hasn't revealed to any of us. Um, mm-hmm. I'm bringing Vampires, uh, which God I forget the guy's name, but it's an erotic horror movie that really blew me away a few years ago. Um, Sam is bringing Loving a Vegetable, which he has been threatening to bring for years. I don't know what to expect with Loving a Vegetable. I'm a little nervous about it. Uh Uh (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, it's at my house where my kids will be this weekend. So, yes, (laughs) vampires will put uh, vampires is a little bit sexy, Joe. Uh Well, well, and I've I've already warned them. Number one, they're all older. They're they range from 16 to 12, if you don't know. Um, but, and, and they'll be in and out. My youngest will, will be gone probably most of the day. He has a, a sleepover birthday party. Um, my daughter is really the one that I want to bring in and out a little bit because yeah. she's the biggest horror fan. So when we have something that's a little more like we, what the, are you the horror ones kind of devolved a little bit into like, how weird can it get? Yeah. Um, so, well, so the, hey, you know, hey, in yeah. fairness, like, you know, horror is such a wide genre. Like yeah. the, the last time we did horror, I mean, from beyond and, yeah. and pin, I mean, pin is weird, but, That's um, very weird. Yeah. Pin is the one about a puppet who like, um, well, I won't even explain it, but you really yeah. need to watch pin. An, but, anatomically correct puppet. Yes. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I will say, I'm, you know, we, yeah, I'm just we, we, same joke. Sorry. It's okay, man. Um, no, I, uh, I'm looking at a no sleep October from 2018. This looks intense. This is, I'm yeah, curious. And Evan, I'm going to ask you specifically because you weren't, um, the huge horror guy. I'm curious if any of these like freaked you out or grossed you out. I'll tell you a story about the last one, but you guys yeah. watched the exorcist Pumpkinhead, burial ground, the New York uh, Ripper. Exor- I want to say exorcist three. Exorcist three. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, it is. The three is in the O's. So yes. in the O, so my apologies. Yeah. Uh, okay. yeah, and then the original funny games, Ravenous and Inside, okay? Yeah. Now, Inside is a movie I'd never heard of, but I was a huge French gore horror fan. Yeah. And this was like a part of like, you know, it had high tension, frontiers, yeah. martyrs, like all of these. And Inside was like somewhere in there is this kind of gross out movie uh, that yeah. I've not seen still. It's one that's on my list. It's one I want to get really? to. But um, Tim Irwin, who was formerly Greg Sorvig's job basically he was the yeah. guy that uh that i worked for i think this same job but anyways uh tim was yeah. the guy that hired me basically when i was interning at uh, heartland film festival and he told me that he had people over every once in a while and they'd watch horror movies some of his friends yeah and he said that one time he showed inside and during the movie someone got up and ran to the bathroom and puked and that just <laughs> I... that just sold the movie to me because like like th- that yeah. movie and Martyrs, because I heard Kumail yeah. uh, Anjiani or however you say his name, uh, the comedian slash actor, uh, Kumail said that he watched Martyrs, and then after it was done, he cried for thirty minutes. <laughs> yeah, I haven't <laughs> like I haven't after made, the movie. I haven't made way to Martyrs yet, but I mean, we we actually did. We did a Hot Tension in twenty seventeen, I think. High Tension's but, pretty um, good. I hate the last two and a half yeah. minutes, but it's great. Yeah, they're a little disappointing at the end. But um, yeah. so Inside was selected because uh, our son was born in spring 2019. So Mitch Ringenberg <laughs> brought Inside specifically because Allie was pregnant <laughs> at the time. Like, and it was, it was one of the better. I mean, it's it's fucking amazing. Like, yeah. really, 2018, like every every single festival we've done has had some stellar like. And like every year we, we end it saying like, oh, shit, this is the best year ever. Like this year we ended on Tony Scott's Unstoppable, like the best movie about a train I've ever seen. Like, fuck <laughs> <Yeah>. fuck. <laughs> we did we did Top Gun this past summer as our hundredth movie we've watched together. Like, um, but like, man, that that No Sleep October in 2018. I mean, Exorcist 3, if you haven't seen it, it's incredible. Burial Ground was Joe's fucked up oh. selection from his childhood. Like, yeah. like New York Ripper recently got sort of a second life because some boutique company finally released it but like yeah that's just good stuff but inside is incredible i fucking love inside it's upsetting graphic it's something people would vomit over yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's uh it's one that's on my list let me ask you about one more movie and then we're gonna call it quits unless you guys sure. i'll let you have a moment to have each no, of you have yeah, your yeah. kind of closing closing remarks anything else you want to say but i want to ask you about one in this 2018 which is funny games this is a movie yeah. that I thought about doing the U.S. remake for my sure. No Sleep October article. I may do that yeah. another year because um, I actually still have never from beginning to end seen the original. I have only really? seen the remake. But what I love about the remake is how Michael Haneke, it has so much subtext in these movies. On the yeah. surface, they're fucked up also. But when you know their subtext, it makes it really interesting to me. But doing a yeah. U.S. remake is like so fascinating. And Joe and I talked about yeah. it because it was in my, I think it was even yeah. in my six through 10 of my favorite yeah. horror films of all time. 
Um, but anyways, uh, I love it. How do you feel about Funny Games? I fucking love this movie, dude. I loved it. It was great. I can't remember who brought it. I can't remember if it was Sam or Mitch. Yeah, um, table. Did but, uh, did you guys watch it? Because I saw a screening. So when the U.S. version came out, yeah, we, there was a screening of it, and I remember telling everybody it because I had seen the original yeah. and no one else had. And I, I it was I don't you weren't there. I don't think Evan at the time. No, I feel like I have Sam, maybe somebody. I've not, not seen the remake. I've only yeah. seen that original one. I'm yeah. familiar enough with with the remake. That that movie was really fucked up. It really bothered me a lot. Yeah, I mean. It was overshadowed somewhat by inside. Like that's one of the only problems with these days is that sometimes you see something that would stick with you for a long time, but then yeah. you see what happens in inside and suddenly everything else that day was mm-hmm. pale in comparison. Well, but, I'm, um, I'm looking at the order that's yeah. just on here and I wish you guys just yeah. watched it in this order. <laughs> <laughs> you might have, I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, we but did, I can yeah. see that because yeah. inside is, is pretty crazy, but I feel like funny games and inside needs a buffer. In the middle, and I feel like yeah, Ravenous is a yeah. good palate cleanser yeah. before you get to Inside. Again, I haven't seen Inside yet, but it's one that I know so much about that I understand where it fits in this. Yeah. But I'm a huge Funny Games fan, so I'm happy that you've seen it. And, and next time you yeah, ever was... watch it or feel like it, you should watch the remake. I think the remake is yeah. just as good. I think a lot of people have a problem mm-hmm. with it because it's basically a shot for shot. But if you sure. know if you know what he's doing with it, I think it actually makes it just as interesting um austin luger and i i think you guys probably know luger austin luger and i had a conversation about funny games for a while and he kind of helped me understand it even more Uh, this is years ago yeah Uh, but anyways uh all that to say uh no sleep october is coming out here uh this month it's probably this comes out august 5th whenever we drop this episode so i'm sure it's probably already going to be started and uh yeah yeah we got there's like a lot going on so definitely go check that out at midwest film journal uh, I'm yep. going to start with you, Evan. Anything you want to leave us with? Uh, don't watch Spooky Buddies at 10 p.m. <laughs> after your wife and child have gone to sleep and you're wondering what to watch. Don't, Jesus don't Christ, you watched it by yourself? You just <laughs> you did didn't that to yourself? <laughs> I didn't even watch it with him. I just was like, I'm going to watch fucking Spooky Buddies, and then I went to sleep. I had to wake up and watch it all again. Oh, wow. <laughs> so don't do that. I mean, they're much no. better. To watch God. check out heartland horror check out heartland film festival this year check out no sleep october check out our 13 fridays column that we have ongoing mm-hmm. um i we, we just have a lot going on at midwest film journal and obviously helping out with heartland is a big part of it and if you want to contribute to us contact us at midwest film journal at gmail.com i mean we we love bringing in other writers we just love re- i love reading good film criticism mm-hmm. i like seeing new people write it so yeah very cool. Yeah. Joe, yeah. what do you want to leave us off with? Buddy? Yeah. Well, you know, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be old uncle Joe. Um, I, you know, I hate, I hate to do that, you know, and, and Evan is, is one of my friends, you know, has been, you know, we've been friends for, for many years now, obviously. And, but you know, it, it was funny when they started Midwest film journal, it, you know, obviously they were, they were leaving the site that, you know, that I, I co-ran and it was, you know, it was a big thing. Like it was a big loss to the site. But, you know, I, it took me about, I don't know, a half hour to realize this is what our mission is, you know, is to uh, expand film criticism, you know, and especially in the state and, you know, and make it something. And, and man, they've taken it and done so much with it, um, so much so that I went and joined them. So, you know, <laughs> I, and, and, I, and I loved it. And I love what, you know, I love it. It's, it's like, it's like a, a new, 
iteration. You know, it's like a, a next generation of of film criticism. Uh, you know, ba- you know, based off of what I was doing. You know, it, it's it goes above and beyond, and the writing is fantastic, and the imagination is fantastic that that they show. Uh, they they do not pay me. I have paid Evan. I think a sum of money in the past. I don't think he's ever paid me money. Some point. Yeah. When I make money, I'll pay money. I mean, that's right. I mean, that's how it works. And we never, you know, it's like we almost never do, but but that's that's not important. The the point is that, you know, they're, they're fantastic (laughs) there. I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it, you know, in in the the small way that I am. And, um, and, you know, I, I love the, I love, you know, seeing that all develop over the years was, is amazing and, and, and fun uh, off of, you know, something that for me was started as a hobby, you know, and, and turned into, something I got money for, for a very small amount of time, you know, comparatively yeah. speaking. And then, you know, mostly it was just kind of a passion. So uh, it, it's fun to see that. And, and, you know, to, to see the the level they've gotten to is, is amazing. So yeah, check out Midwest film journal, all that stuff. Evan said, especially in the Friday column, the part five essay yes. I heard is really amazing. You should so, read it. Joe knocks yeah. it out of the fucking park. That movie is amazing. <laughs> Joe's essay captures why it's amazing and underrated. People talk shit on part five of Friday and they don't know what they're talking about. Nope. I really like, hope that, that when I see that movie again, so I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, when you, when you watch through the Friday movies, mm-hmm. read the essays on our site, because I feel like everyone who has contributed, I'm about to read Nick Rogers essay on Jason takes Manhattan right now. He just, he just sent it over to me. Oh, but like nice. the, every essay we've had so far has been so on point capturing like what, what every Friday movie has someone who loves it and someone who hates it. Mm-hmm. And every essay we've had has been a really good explanation by each person as to why that's the Friday movie they love. Even the ones that are like not the best one, yeah. like part yeah. seven. Like, yeah. I mean, but it's been a really cool, I mean, it's a, been a really good time. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I'll say this, I'll say this. I'm a huge fan of the Friday series. I've watched the entire, the crystal Lake memories, you know, documentary, yeah. which is like, eight million hours long and i've watched every i've seen every movie i don't know 10 times each you know excepting maybe jason x which i've only seen a couple of times yeah but but (laughs) well in the in the remake which is kind of garbage but no um, okay it's not but it is but it's not whatever (laughs) fake boobs don't work in friday the 13th sorry even in america i I don't know but Uh, but the the point is that i learned something in every single one of those essays including the one I wrote, but, oh my but God. you know, there, there, there's something break your learn. fucking hand, patting yourself on the back, Joe, <laughs> Jesus. Hey, don't be jealous just because you didn't get to write one. Hey, I, I sent it to everyone. It filled up so fast. No, it's fine. Yeah. Still, waiting, still waiting. The only person I have who hasn't confirmed that they're writing their essay is uh, Tony Schaub, who's writing the remake essay. And, oh. and I, um, Hopefully he turns it in, but if he doesn't, I could go full throated in defense of that movie too. Yeah, <laughs> like, that movie, that remake is the only one of those '80s remakes that huh? that uh, really captures it. Like the best remake of the. Sorry to diverge right at the end here. No, it's okay. But we could never do a series on the Halloween movies because Halloween four, five, six, and eight are so fucking bad that I don't even want to ask someone to watch one to try to defend them. Like there's. So- I love four. Four terrible, but you know, know, okay, know. fine. I if we ever it. did it, if we ever did a, you know, if we were doing a series, you get four. Uh, uh, I'll take four automatically. Yeah, just five like, is horrible. 
But yeah. uh, five is just but uh, Rob Zombie remade those movies in the late two thousands, and everyone shits on those remakes. And the first one deservedly so, but that second zombie remake is the meanest piece of shit I've ever seen. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. He loved that movie. And I so, hate it. So oh so god, it is not. I mean, it's a Halloween movie. Yeah, if you're a purist who believes there's something to preserve in that series, yeah. the zombie remake is, is is garbage. But man, it's so mean. It's so nasty. It's yeah. like. We were watching the David Gordon Green version in the theater in the press screening, and there's a moment where uh, you know Mitch, Joe, me, and Nick and Sam were sitting together, and and my wife Allie, and uh, like there's a scene where Michael passes a bassinet and there's a baby in it, and I don't know who said it, but we say it all the time now. Someone turned to someone else and said Rob Zombie would have fucking killed that baby. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, like it's no punches pulled that Halloween two by Rob Zombie. You should watch that movie. It's just nasty. has all this weird Oedipal stuff that just mm-hmm. does not belong in Halloween. Like Sherry Moon Zombie is this angelic woman who, who plays, you know, Michael Myers mom on a white horse that he sees floating. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I mean, so listen, I, I'd watch it. I saw the first yeah. one and I hated it. I, I have my reasons. Movie. But um, yeah. but I'm I actually am not a huge fan of movies that are just mean. But uh, I'll tell you what though, I want to yeah. watch this just because you've talked about it. You I want to finally to. see the Rob Zombie remake of uh, oh, the God. second one. Man. Yeah, man, it's, and he oh, kills God. the shit out of Octavia Spencer in that movie too. God, like, just so bad. Like it is but, like, you know, I've loved oh, her in so many movies, and it's just like. This is just like it's so brutal. Every I, every kill is mean. Every yeah. character is an irredeemable piece of shit. Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. it's glorious. <laughs> I have so, I actually. I know we're closing here, uh, but I want to ask you a question, Evan, because yeah. um, next week, uh, Joe and I are going to be talking about this movie. I'm curious if you've seen it. It's kind of harder yeah. to find anymore unless it's on Shutter occasionally, or it might be somewhere. Sure. But have you seen the 1971 film The Devils? Yes, I've seen that a couple times, actually. Yeah, I actually, I yeah. never watched it because I wanted to find an uncut version. I didn't want to watch sure. the DVD, and I got a copy of it. I sent it to Joe. We're going to cover it mm-hmm. next week. It's uh, a great we're going to do, like, 70s. Uh, are you into it? What What can Joe expect whenever he cries himself to sleep watching this movie? <laughs> I mean, the problem, the problem with the devils is that I've seen. I had by the time I saw an uncut copy of the devils, I had seen so much other fucked up shit in movies that I was like, "This is really fucked up." But like, it's not as shocking to me as I imagined sure. it was in the 1970s. Like, uh, I mean, but it's pretty fucked up. It's a good fucked up time. It has. I mean, it's it's Oliver Reed, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's fucking amazing in it. Like I'd love him to death. He's like so I love good. the fact he's always drunk. He's <laughs> always amazing. But like, but he's great in it. Oh, you'll enjoy it, Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I can't wait. I'm excited to watch it, dude. Hey, there's Joe. so much. I'm excited to talk about it because there's so much yeah. history, and it's just banned. Like ever, it's still banned. Yeah. It's just like, uh, and just the history of not being able to see an original cut of it, and yeah. it's just such. It's just, I just love finding those. William Friedkin talked about it. Talked about how like he saw that film, and it, he's basically just like, I want The Exorcist to be this, you know, yeah. and and just like just how influential a film could be on filmmakers and then no one's able to see it for decades and then but we see it through other films people trying to be that fucked up 
But even when people try to be that fucked up, because I know a ton about it. I've seen tons of scenes. Sure. You know, there's a crazy nun orgy scene, and there's, you know, this... Uh, dude, there's just fucked up. I don't need to talk about it yet, because we'll talk about it next week. But the point is, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's just, like, so much fucked up stuff in it. And I'm just so excited to talk about it. Because, like you said... Yeah. I've, I, Watch Halloween too. You're going to see something more gruesome and violent, yeah. or you can watch The Exorcist and it's irreverent and it's fucked up. And you, you, like we can name a ton of movies, but it's rare sure. that you get a movie that is so fucked up that the company that owns the distribution rights, Warner Brothers, won't sell the distribution rights to anyone because it's still so fucked up. Like, sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that's uh, like Criterion's been trying to get it for years, and they're like, yeah. we can't let you have this. <laughs> They're turning down money. Uh, What'd you say? I've always hoped Criterion would get the rights to it. Like, I want a good copy of it. Exactly. Yeah. But anyways, uh, Joe, did you have anything else to say? Because we kind of went on a tangent there, buddy. Yeah. No, yeah, no. I I said it. I said my piece. And yeah, let's let's get out of here. Awesome. Well, okay. Thanks. Well, Evan, thank you so much for for hanging out with this dude, Joe. Yeah. As always, thank you, buddy. It's a great time. Have a good one, guys. <laughs> yeah. See ya. See ya. All right. I know what you're thinking. All right. I'm getting away from this 90 minute thing I was trying to go for. You know, I was trying to stay within 15 minutes or so of that. And the last few episodes have been over two hours. But you know what? I'm having a great time. I'm talking about a lot of movies. And when you have a marathon that you're doing solo, it's really hard to shut up about them. All right? So thank you for being patient, you know, with these two-hour episodes or, or, or more uh, sometimes. Uh, next week is going to be awesome. I'm having Joe back on. Uh, I'm actually going to be out of town for this whole week. So we already recorded the episode. It's, uh, it's on the Ken Russell film, The Devils. We're going back to horror since it's horror month. And, oh boy, I am really excited for you folks to hear that. I'm also going to finish out the Under the Radar marathon uh, for that. I'll, it's just like a part one. I'll pick up some more Under the Radar, uh, you know, soon enough. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to finish off in the last two the la- last two or three or however many I'm going to end up doing are all going to be horror-related so it fits into our uh, horror month or Shocktober, whatever you want to call it. Um, but, yeah, that's going to be really fun. So definitely check out that episode. I hope you enjoyed this one. Go check out uh, the Midwest Film Journal. But yeah, that's pretty much it for today. Thank you so much for being here. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy.